Have you been on for this one yet? No. Huh? No. You, this is no. This is the first. This is the first thing uh, that we've done at all. I, I oh, said, that's right. You know, you, you you saved it for me. Yeah. Thank you. Prima nocta for for Greg Bishop. Thank you. I'm turning off my camera because I'm just going to get distracted if I don't. Okay, yeah, let me turn mine off too. It's probably... I'm going to start making faces and shit. <laughs> yeah, and then I'll go, what, Josh, what? Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah exactly. You're going to start reading facial cues and yeah. Yeah. It's Roddy Mysterioso. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not, uh, not a viable solution to this. We, we need to go... F- through a turning point in the study of, of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that, the, um, that, this, that this phenomenon is, um, comes, from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information. And the fact that they can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain. It's also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? My God, it's Radio Mysterioso after all these months. And strangely enough, and um, what's the word? Uh, appropriately enough, it is beginning again with with the with the show with the uh, guests that I left off with, Josh Cutchin and uh, Timothy Renner, who are here. Uh, can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's that's right. We wrote an entire book in the time that you've been off. <laughs> <laughs> not true, not true, not true. Well, you were you 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 had written part of it. I remember when we did the interview, you said like you know you said we have so much uh, material that we are doing a second volume. So I think you were probably well on your way at that point. No, I, I was Josh, it was yeah. Josh go ahead, Tim. Was probably mostly done his his chapters at that point, and I still had a lot of punching up to do on mine. Oh, okay. Yep, but I look back on it, and I was still picking at it and adding things 
I know that I've added some. I added some oh, stuff yeah. between uh, the, the the first book and this. You know. Oh yeah. This release it, until well. it's locked, you're just doing that up. It's like, oh, I can change this. I can change this. I can change this. <laughs> and it, suddenly you can't exactly. do it anymore because it's basically locked. Well, I guess if you self-publish it, isn't really. You can just change it well, and just you know send another version off to uh, Amazon or whatever. Well, you know what's that old saying? Art is never released; it escapes. You know. Yes, exactly. It's funny that you call the book art, and you know, I think it is too. That's what um, Diana Pasolka said about her book. I, I was talking to her about the book, and she said it almost seemed like a, like I was working on a piece of art, not not on a book. And I kind of feel like that about um, any really good book like this one. Well, the two, the two footprints end books, and oh, plus they're filled with beautiful art from um, from Tim. So thank yeah, you. as with volume one, you don't get near as much of that if you get the uh the kindle um the the paperback is the one that has all the wonderful illustrations that tim did and they're just they're i think the sort of um vibe that tim's illustrations of bigfoot give off really does color the book i mean it's the first thing i said about the the original cover that he did is you know it it kind of almost looks like something you're not supposed to be reading you know <laughs> and uh and i think he's carried that sort of theme through a lot of these different uh, haunting little spot illustrations and the uh and the other other stuff he's done it's just it really outdid himself on the cover this time too i think yeah the cover is beautiful and the, the artwork is beautiful and i like the the thing that i liked about the first one and this one is it has end papers they don't do that in books anymore. You know what the you know the weirdest end papers I've ever seen and the most wonderful are the ones for I believe um Low, I believe. Oh really? I think, yeah, the original 1938 was it Low? I think that's the one I have. I've got one first edition first printing of Charles Fort and it has these end papers that look like it's um uh, volcanoes or mountains with with uh, scary uh, monster faces on them. That's the only way I can describe it. It's That's cool. awesome. <laughs> Part of the the design and the way the way we we kind of laid it out was the idea that I wanted it to, to look like, you know, at least as much as you know as possible with with modern layout techniques and my artwork. I wanted it to look like an old folklore book because I mean that's a lot of what we went through for our research is these old folklore books and. Often they looked really beautiful. They didn't just have great folklore. And they, they looked just really, really beautiful. There was a real art to making books back then. Yeah. Yeah, there is. And, you know, that that has been lost, obviously. Um, not Well, not totally lost. If you have a love for books, that just gets into your DNA. It, it sinks into your uh, the way that you, you would design a book, just the love of seeing older books and what they used to look like. And that's what I see in, in footprints and in, in both volumes. Yeah, I take that as a high compliment. Thank you. If we're fighting against ebooks, you know, I, I have to make the, the print book look special. If they're going to be two different things, and uh, so that's a, another one of my goals. It's like I don't want it to just be a print version of something someone could have looked at on their Kindle anyway. Right, exactly. Um, I will read. Well, you know what? People don't need to. Uh, people listen to this show are hip. They don't need to know it. But I will read the short. Um, blurb that's on amazon if you don't mind oh the the guests are 
are Josh Kutchin and Tim Renner. <laughs> you, if you want to hear about them, you should go to the last show and listen to the introduction to that one. But I'll do go. this one. Uh, Josh Kutchin, author of such books as Thieves in the Night, Brimstone Deceit, and A Trojan Feast, all essential reading for anybody that's listening to this show. Anybody that's listening to this show has probably read them. Um, oh, also in his uh, uh, groundbreaking chapter in UFOs, Reframing the Debate, the wonderful book that um, I'm glad I was a part of. Um, and Tim's books include uh, Don't Look Behind You, uh, Bigfoot in Pennsylvania, and Bigfoot West Coast Wild Men. Am I missing anything else that was just your own? Because I, I think you have a few co-authors too, right, right, uh, Tim? No, the only stuff I've done with the co-authors, the two where the footprints end with Josh. Uh, my first book was called Beyond the Seventh Gate, and I have a book of illustrations out as well called Apparitions. Oh, okay. All right. People can look online for that. This volume, Where the Footprints End, Part 2, the blurb that one of you has probably written that was on Amazon is, um, despite continued attempts to uncover the, pr- the truth... Proof of the Bigfoot phenomenon has eluded researchers and cryptozoologists for decades. Witnesses regularly describe seeing and interacting with something like a large undiscovered hominid, and yet such sightings regularly produce evidence directly at odds with conventional scientific explanations. Damn straight. It seems impossible to reconcile these peculiarities among the mystery lights, UFOs, unusual sounds, mind speak, which we'll talk about, cryptic, cryptic stick signs, um, which we will also speak about, and anomalous footprints and trackways with the notion of flesh and blood creatures evading detection on, in the modern frontier. As remarkable as this discovery of a man like primate would be, what if Bigfoot is something stranger still? Volume 2 of Where the Footprints End follows the trailblazed by authors Joshua Cutchin and Timothy Renner, demonstrating how deeply the inexplicable peripheral oddities of high strangest are infused in our contemporary wild man mythology. The journey concludes with a pair of case studies exemplifying how the mysterious mess of the supernatural collides with reality, generating truly baffling encounters. Um, oh, and the, yeah, the, the last line there actually I thought was very good. No one knows exactly where the footprints end, but these mark the final steps of our journey. But the funny thing is it kind of marks a beginning of another one too, just basically making people aware of this. And I think we talked about it in the first show, but um, I have you gotten some pushback about these ideas? You you must have from the you know the flesh and blood people. It's been remarkably quiet. I mean, every, every now and then we'll get a pithy Amazon uh, review, <laughs> but in terms of like anybody who has any real cachet in the cryptozoological community, I haven't really seen a whole lot, Tim. Uh, a little bit, a little bit, and usually it comes from individuals who will just you know say something snarky. Or, uh, you know, I'll catch something in a Facebook group here and there, you know, that, uh, you know, we missed the mark because A, B, and C proves that, you know, Bigfoot is, you know, an undiscovered hominid or whatever. I think think more than people being deliberately uh, combative, I think people just kind of miss the point of what we're trying to do. (laughs) There was was somebody who had some... People no. listen to what they want to hear often, not to what you're yeah. saying, and you have to get used to that. Yeah, I, I, there have been a couple of things that I've heard here and there that's like, oh, the narrative isn't great. And I'm like, what? What? <laughs> Do you know the definition of that word? <laughs> like, there isn't a narrative here. That's a, well, uh, this know, is not I, a you know. narrative book. I mean, you can't really do it that way. 
What kind of narrative are you going to put on, you know, 3,000 different cases of of the Bigfoot? I guess you could have put one on, but then it wouldn't be the book that it is. Actually, when I was reading it, the the parts that I did read, and I read probably a little over half of it, I'm sorry. Um, I had, uh, you know, full disclosure, I had Josh send me some questions for basically to get to the stuff that I hadn't read. Um, but I, when I was reading it, I actually wrote down the writing is a pleasure to read and somewhere between an academic fol- folkloric paper and the work of Keel and Fort, meaning a g- great bunch of information, a lot of really good illustrative um, uh, uh, anecdotes or uh, accounts. And uh, and then just on top of that, just, you know, some some nice, intelligent and fun and almost folksy writing, not folksy, but just kind of like, you know what I'm talking about. We're friends. And that, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's kind of how, that's kind of how I, you know, read the book. No, I, I, I genuinely appreciate that. I, uh, you know, I, I've always had sort of a, uh, I, I guess if, if I'm not make, cause I mean, I, I would love to do fiction at some point, but the kind of levels of fiction that I want to write, I don't know if I'm capable of writing, you know, these sort of books that you have to like peel apart. You Me know, too. They have symbolism <laughs> and layers. I'm like, I don't know yeah. if I'm capable of that aspect of it. So I try to, you know, uh, put a little bit of, a little bit of artistry into some of that stuff and throw in a couple of, of dry jokes every now and then that may or may not get noticed. And I think, I think that's sort of been uh, Tim's uh, ethos on it as well. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I try to find the story. Like when I when I start a chapter, I kind of look at it and I'll, I know there's this information that that you know I, I need to get out there and and maybe there's like this information I'd like to include and how do I weave it together and I and I try to find a bit of a story there, but it's you know it's nonfiction and other than uh, the the two um, chapters at the end uh, where we're talking about actual witness accounts. You know, it's it's you have to kind of find the story within the information and, and pull it out. Right. Yeah, because it has to make sense in a way to people that are reading. You can't just say this happened, this happened, this happened. I mean, there is a narrative to anything. And all the accounts, I mean, that's how people tell stories. So each each account actually is a story in itself, but they are held together by the themes of the chapters, obviously. And, um, you know, to, to me, it's just in the great tradition of any kind of book like this, like, you know, like you would read a, a, a Bernard Wevelman's book or or Ivan Sanderson. I mean, they, this is the model, you know. Yeah. And, and I uh, <clears throat> I. I completely forgot what I was going to say <laughs> about <laughs> narrative writing, about um, about your language, about. Oh yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I find Easter the... eggs even in some of the words you use, which is which is great. Yeah, if if you can get a word to to mean like three things at once, that's you know the the, the triple word score Scrabble version <laughs> of the book, I think. Um, but uh, but you know, it's I kind of. I, I want to always want to make sure that there are stories in, in, in the stuff that I write because that is what a lot of people love. But at the same time, I think there's this fetishization in a lot of paranormal circles of this book has really great stories. Well, that's great. Can we get some deeper insight than just stories? And, you know, I, yeah. I think otherwise that, uh, it's just porno, which is fine once in a while. But right. Yeah. Well, so, yeah sometimes sometimes you need that. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think primarily, you know, Josh and I know we're writing for you know, the people who are going to read the book, the people who are interested in this. Secondarily to that, though, I think Josh and I were writing in a way for each other. 
So oh, perfect. It, it kind of pushed us a little bit, but it's also there's there's little like nods to things that that we've said either off air or in other books and so forth. Mm. So there's there's a lot of that uh, that was fun for us. I think that's a part of the writing. The yeah. audience was inside of us all along. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I did this um, uh, when I write. I put things in for myself, and if people notice them, great. And if not, whatever. I mean, it was just fun. Why, why not make the writing a fun project, a, fr- a fun activity? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I I do have your questions, but I did type up a few, and I will jump back and forth between them. Um, awesome. Yeah. Uh, so what's your response to those to adhere to a biological explanation, the blood, flesh and blood people? And why do you think they cling to this theory? Oh, and a third part of that, is there a middle way here? There's got to be. So th- those questions. <laughs> Either of you. Well, I, I'm going to put on Facebook that uh, just unfriend me now if you still believe Bigfoot is a large. <laughs> 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 it right? always works. Yeah. Um, I, I had that happen to me this week. <laughs> that's actually kind of true. I remember what talking about. Yeah. Bigfoot um, is paranormal. Change my mind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking about this today because, you know, for as much grief as a lot of our sort of circle, Greg gives, you know, um, the ETH, we would all love for, you know, aliens to land and, you know, prove to be extraterrestrials. That'd be really cool. Yeah. It's not Oddly off the enough, table. It's no in no way off the table. Right. I I kind of, in a weird sort of uh, way, kind of find that less interesting <laughs> nowadays, which, you know, supposedly it's the most interesting thing that a lot of people can, can fathom, but I kind of find it less interesting nowadays. But, but the, what I'm getting at is that there's still that real earnest initial interest in why you got interested in this, but you really hope that that's the case. Um, I think that it's a real blessing that a lot of these topics sort of open up the more you investigate them and they sort of change if, if, if they change with you as you age, you know, your opinion of what something might be changes completely from time to time. And a little, you know, hopefully, you know, every month you're going to bed thinking a different thing about these things if you're involved in them. Yeah. Um, so I, I still love the idea of Bigfoot being a relic hominid. I think there's a lot of good, ev- again, the best scientific evidence, I think, for the physical uh, existence of any of these phenomena is really in the hands of these these Bigfoot uh, hunters. But I I just I find a real upsetting cognitive dissonance when they say we need to believe these witnesses, and they say except when they you know except when they say the crazy stuff. <laughs> that's all. That's all coincidence or BS, right, Tim? Um, oh yeah. So you know I I have a problem with that because it's it's like I, I was speaking with someone who said, well, you know, if Bigfoot disappears, doesn't that just mean it could have jumped into a into a, a, a ditch or it could have gone behind a tree? And I said, no. I said, it says that people say it disappeared. Yeah. I mean, great. I'm sure that could happen sometimes. But if you, if you keep if you keep with that line of thinking, you wind up taking things away from the witness's story and you wind up at Bigfoot as a bear. You know, you wind up at, well, then you just you just mess identified a bear. It's if you the, keep on, if it's you keep the, on seating. Yeah. Yeah, if, if the flesh and blood ground, slippery slope, huh? <laughs> well, it's it's like you keep on seeding ground to this to this dominant paradigm that we're in, and that you end up with just saying, "Well, it was never anything to begin with." And you know, at, at the end of the day, something has to matter, right? <laughs> something has to be the thing that you cling to and believe, you know, and, and, and believe in. So that's that's my two cents. 
I suppose so. Tim? Well, um, yeah, what, what's you your know, response I, I, to that? Why do they cling to the theory? And is there a middle way that you, th- you would think? Boy, I'm, I'm, I'm less flexible as time goes on of, of this, <laughs> of this uh, flesh and blood uh, giant ape man in, in the woods in North America. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, leave, I'll leave a small possibility that, that it could be there. Uh, yeah, I mean... You've brainwashed me. I tend to agree with you. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's just really hard. I mean, there's just there's nothing in the fossil record. We've we've never caught one, and they come up with these or find remains. Just, I'm sorry, or find remains. Right, exactly, exactly. And uh, there's you know all this bizarre theory, and you know I'm sure I use the uh, the metaphor before when we talked about the the sort of Rube Goldberg machine of of uh well quote unquote logic that they mm-hmm. have to build to make these things work. Yep. That just fails for me after after so long of looking at it, I just I just I can't make it work. I can't make it work. And I'm you know, I'm not trying to offend people who who believe that's the way. I just personally can't can't make it work anymore. That said, I talked to tons of witnesses face to face. They look me in the eyes. I can see the fear in their eyes when they tell these stories. I can see them shaking. You know, I, I a thousand percent believe them. You know, I've, I've had some pretty weird stuff happen to me when mm-hmm. I've been out in the woods that, uh, I, you know, I can't explain, you know. Uh, so there's something real to the phenomena. So maybe that's the middle way. You know, there, there's something at some point these things do manifest or can manifest as as real physical objects or, or beings, you know, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. I don't, the sad thing is, I don't know what they are either. You know, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't know what they are, but I do believe that people are seeing them. I do believe when they're here, they leave footprints, they leave hair, they leave scat behind. Mm-hmm. And it's, this is a really, really difficult thing to talk about because people very earnestly, you know, want to believe that there's this undiscovered species out there. It's a, it's a very romantic notion. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a real, uh, almost a desperation in the Bigfoot community to be accepted by mainstream science. I don't, I don't know whether oh, yeah. because they've been they've been made fun of for so long that they're yeah. just like, you know, we'll show them. This sounds very we'll... familiar, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that's the thing. It's it, it occurs across the the board here with UFOs and ghosts and everything else. But um, but there's uh, they really have this need to, to sort of you know, prove that, that these creatures exist in, in this, in the way that, you know, mountain gorillas were proven in the, in the, you know, yeah. 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just, for me, it just seems less and less likely as, as time goes on and we have to start looking at other things, you know, or I had to anyway, uh, yeah. to, to explain it to myself, I had to look at these other possibilities. Yeah. When you were saying that, I just, I just came up with a term, maybe, maybe somebody's used it before, but it's the, I told you so syndrome. <laughs> at some point you could say see see i told you so it's like that's not why you should be looking into this you should be looking into this because you have a um a sincere interest in it and um that's why i have the people i have on on this show because they tend to have the more sincere like i really don't care what you think this is what i'm interested in and you know that that's what i get out of your you know both your guys work um, yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying to. You know, I'm. I'm not a scientist. I will readily admit. I'm. I'm. If I'm anything, I'm probably a folklorist. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
so I'm not I'm sort of beyond the point of trying to prove this to anybody. I, I really feel like, again, like I've talked to enough witnesses. I've experienced enough stuff myself where I feel like something is genuinely out there. There's something to this or, or at least something behind this. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, certainly if, if people want to prove it, I, you know, I, I don't want it to come off as if I'm making fun of them. I just just for my own purposes, it just it just, I can't make it work anymore using like what I know of of science and, and you know, the scientific model. I can't make this work at this point in time as a as a relic hominid or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another thing I, I uh, wondered, I was as I was reading uh, the text that I did read, um, you compare you know when you talk about the flesh and blood hypothesis, you talk about uh, you know Bigfoot as a primate, as a, a great ape, if it is a flesh and blood uh, creature, um, and you kind of wonder, or I wondered as I'm reading these, and you know the whole time I've been reading Bigfoot stuff since I was a kid. Um, you wonder if Bigfoot is closer to us or a great ape, you know, or is that an irrelevant question? Is that, is that a legitimate uh, thing to ask? If there really is a, some sort of entity with, with an intelligence, is it more, is it a human in, in, that looks like a great ape or it's close to us or does it look like that to not to keep us from getting too freaked out or what would you say to that? I mean, I think that might be the, the heart of the, the whole question. Um, because I mean, if if there is a flesh and blood aspect to this, that might be the really defining characteristic of what this thing is capable of or not capable of. You know, an idea that that Tim has played around with in his chapters of the idea of you know a magically operant Bigfoot, which I think would <laughs> would you know put it in the uh, in the more human than ape sort of camp. But um, just as interesting is to me is the idea that. Uh, that if this is some sort of objective other that isn't really um, involved with us in any sort of way, uh, it, it certainly did pick a poignant um, mask to wear. Hmm. Uh, if, if that makes any sense, it makes um, total sense. I love that. I mean, I mean, in some ways, not to not to poo poo on the on the UFO crowd, but in some ways, like oh, go ahead and poo on them. Well, well <laughs> but in some ways, like. There's so much more, I feel like, baggage tied up in the image of Bigfoot than there is in a lot of these, you know, alien ideas that we have, like the, you know, the typical gray that we have or, or anything, or, you know, I'm a big fan of fairy lore. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the typical fairy image or, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. It still doesn't have the sort of baggage that I think the image of the wild man does, you know, the ethical questions alone, like how, how should I feel about this thing? <laughs> you know, should I feel like it's, it's my brother or is it the other? Um, is it, uh, you know, is, is this something, you know, do I have something inside of me that could manifest in this sort of way that could be this animalistic? Am I miss you know should i be treating my animal kin better because this thing looks like it's somewhere in the middle i mean you talk to these people who who see these things and they're just absolutely shaken by how human like they look or they try to pull the trigger they're just absolutely um you know dumbfounded and and really shaken to their their absolute core again i'm not i'm not poo-pooing our little gray space friends but uh no i I know what you mean i think there's a lot of psychological baggage in the eye in the image of the wild man yeah, most definitely. Um, uh, what about uh, Tim? What do you think about that that issue? Well, I mean, if 
I mean, if these are something that's out there from their behavior, from their reported behavior, they have to be a lot closer to us than to like a mountain grill, say. Mm-hmm. Uh, they seem to have serious intelligence and, and reasoning skills and uh, they manipulate things in very interesting ways in terms of like people who report either living, leaving gifts or or these these different glyphs and stick signs and so forth uh, if if they're indeed you know made by by Bigfoot so you know if if this is something that's a creature that's out there i think i think it has to be closer to us just from what people report um but you know as always i'll end with i but i don't know what it is <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that, that's the, you know, that's the ultimate thing that uh, most people I talk to that I find interesting. They're like, well, I don't know. I don't know what this is. It's still interesting. Uh, the last thing that uh, when I last time I saw Jacques Vallée talk at the end of his talk, knowing who he is, the last thing he said was, I have no idea what's going on. I still don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's the most profound thing that anybody that's into this stuff could say is... I really haven't made a decision about this because you can't. And right. it's, you know, it's the ultimate in pareidolia. It just, it, whatever you think it is becomes the thing that you think it is and you back yourself into a corner. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's where you get into, into problems and where people start tripping themselves up because they become so devoted, whether it's the flesh and blood hypothesis or whatever, they become so devoted to this idea that they, they can't see a way around it, you know, and, They'll make declarations like this is what it is. And then they're locked in. You're locked in now. You know, you, you either have to come out with another declaration and say I was wrong. That's not what it is. Or like some of these cryptozoologists who have been Ignore. writing books for 40 years, you just say the same thing over and over again mm-hmm. and refuse to believe. No, it's an ape. It's an ape. It's an ape. It's an ape. Yeah. Can apes do this? It doesn't matter. That stuff is that's irrelevant information. It's not it's not it doesn't address the core of um, finding this uh, undiscovered hominid. Exactly. Witnesses are dumb, except when they say things that that back up my theory. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that, I mean, it's interesting how people put so much of their identity in their pet theory. I think there's probably a dissertation to be written about it in some sense. I mean, I, again, this is, you're talking to the guy here who got vague death threats on UFO Twitter for not bending the knee to TTSA. (laughs) So... (laughs) Do you, you wear know, your TTSA I, shirt that I got you, Josh? I do. I do, and no one and no one recognizes it at all. In Good. The of our disclosure, Lord, twenty twenty one. No That's one. Right. Here, it. here is your ultimate irony shirt, Josh. <laughs> um, but uh, I gave it to you as a as to so you could wear it as a hipster might. <laughs> right, with irony. No, I mean, I, I just, I think that we need to have well it's really sort of a microcosm of what we're seeing at a uh, national and international level yeah, too. That's just um, what I thought when, when Tim said, yeah. What he said, yeah, it, 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 it reflects what your, or no, you just said it. It reflects what your, um, your bias is. Your theory is going to reflect your bias and it, you have to be careful that your bias doesn't become, you know, the truth or your, you know, it can be your truth, but it should be malleable, but especially, with this weird stuff. I mean, you can check up on scientific things. You can check up on political things. Hopefully you can check up <laughs> on normal things that everybody experiences, but you can't check up on 
Bigfoot. You can't check up on UFOs. You can't check up on ghosts. They're just they just happen when they happen. Um, and so it's a it's a different you know so it behooves people even more not to be putting uh, putting these things in boxes. I would think. I mean, yeah, it's it's just it's um. I think it really is that desire to say, I told you so at the end of the day, like somehow <laughs> there's going to be a Bigfoot body and Tim and I are going to look dumb. Um, but you know, I, I've, I've come to realize that just as with the UFO thing, I mean, we could, we could have a landing on the white house lawn tomorrow and it wouldn't take away any of the high strangeness. I mean, yeah, it might be harder to amplify that signal, but people still report lots of high strangeness involved with UFOs. And even if there's something that's, you know, very straight ahead extraterrestrial encounter that happens in the future, it doesn't take away the fact that these people have had similar experiences that are just quite frankly, bonkers. Thousand percent. They could roll a body in that lab tomorrow. And that that's the beginning of the question. You still have to answer why all these weird things happen that, yeah. that witnesses reported, you know? Well, I would posit that that will never happen. Just like I, I would I, posit that you would never have a, a UFO land on the White House lawn or whatever, irrespective of, you know, uh, crash debris or whatever, which is a whole nother. Um, exactly. Um, but yeah, I heard I heard Tim saying, yeah, yeah, yeah you, you, I, I don't think nobody will ever have a Bigfoot body ever. Yeah, I, I 100 percent agree. Um, I, I would bet my house on a few things, but I'd bet my house on that. <laughs> Why? Uh, well, we have examples. I, I mean, it, in my uh, chapter in this book, in Disappearing Evidence, I go over every instance I could find, and, and there are more beyond that, but every instance I could find of people claiming to have a Bigfoot body. Mm, yeah. And not 90% of the time, not 80% of the time, not 99% of the time, 100% of the time, <laughs> they go missing, or yeah. they turn out to be hoaxes. Yeah. For, for one reason or another, people can't produce the body. Yeah. It's just like, um, well, like any of these things, it's just the, the evidence, concrete evidence remains tantalizingly out of reach. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, you know, tell me what you think of this. If you ever get some tantalizing evidence that you can count on, the phenomenon will change into something else that, uh, that we still cannot figure out. It will, it will present some other inscrutable, um, I don't know about fact, but inscrutable face to us that makes it even more mysterious, even though we have whatever uh, artifact that we might, we might care to name. A hundred percent. I, more often than not, the, the evidence just goes missing and, you know, people have any number of explanations for this, you know, the, the mysterious, you know, black helicopters or black vans from the government came and took it, or, you know, the, the powers that be just snatched it out of the mail, you know, when they were sending it to a lab or whatever, or, uh, in the case of Bigfoot bodies, often they say that, you know, the, the creatures come out of the woods and reclaim their, their own and, and bury their dead and right, whatever uh, that. aspect, you know, the, uh, however, the, the way they go missing might differ, but the, the end result is the same. The, the evidence un, is unavailable to us. And this has been the same, I mean, at least going as far back as the, the supposed, you know, giant skeletons that, that people found in the 1800s that, you know, the, the great evil entity, the Smithsonian, would come in and snatch them away yeah. and and take them off. And then no one could ever, you know, see them again. And only, you know, certain people with uh, great knowledge or, or great uh, clearance or whatever, the Smithsonian could see them or the Smithsonian destroys them because they they don't confirm with uh, 
you know, accepted science or something like this. So, that, you know, this yeah. has been going on for a long time, this idea that, that these things go missing. Yeah, it's it's um, self-negating. I mean, I think certainly Josh and I have discussed this, but the, the phenomenon is self-negating. The other weird thing I thought, just by coincidence today, I was listening to an Alan Watts lecture, and he was talking about examining things with telescopes and microscopes. And he says, every time you focus the telescope or microscope ever deeper, he says the universe or whatever you're looking at runs away from it. Huh. It runs away from the instrument that you're trying to examine it with. It's like you're going to look at you know you're going to look at it this way. Well, I'm going to run further away so you realize that 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 instrument is not fine enough to determine what you know the next step of whatever that uh, whatever you're looking at. You know what the what you know what is an atom? Oh well, it's you know he said you you get a knife. People used to get knives and cut finer and finer and finer until the thing you're cutting with the knife is smaller than the, than your knife edge. Right. And I right. think we're kind of dealing with this in a more um, universal way with the UFO thing and, the, well, any paranormal stuff is that every knife we, we use to cut into whatever it is, the phenomenon becomes smaller than the knife or different than what the knife can cut or runs away from the knife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's been two major DNA studies of you know Sasquatch DNA and... Uh, one of them was from uh, Dr. Brian Sykes from Oxford, and he very well respected geneticist. Uh, who I believe he died recently. So uh, hats off to to Dr. Sykes and mm-hmm. uh, all the work that he did. But he he didn't really discover anything that would uh, say a you know relatominid or undiscovered primate of any type. He he did some some interesting stuff came up in his study, including like a a bear that they thought was, you know, extinct, some kind of like previously thought to be prehistoric bear, which, which actual cryptozoologists should be amazed and excited about, but right. Yeah. (laughs) Not as many were. Yeah. Well, it's Um, not Bigfoot. So forget about it. uh, But wait a second. There was something really cool here. A a lot of his stuff, like kind of debunks some, some famous cases. um, And again, that, that may or may not be the phenomenon itself sort of uh, mutating or sidestepping the testing. But the other study was um, by, uh, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank on her name, Josh. Um, Melba Ketchum. Thank you, Josh. Ah, yes. Melba Ketchum. Yes. And uh, as far as like, you know, uh, other geneticists looking at her work is extremely problematic. And there's been a, a lot of uh, questions as to her methodology and, and her conclusions. But, uh, you know, folks in the Bigfoot crowd would just say, well, that's just because, you know, the mainstream science won't accept this and et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at her conclusions, one of her conclusions is this like novel DNA. Like it's uh, it's human female DNA uh, on the maternal side. And the paternal side is this completely novel DNA that's unlike anything else on the planet. So at that point, you either have something. So, so you either have like a completely flawed DNA study and this, you know, whatever she found is is just flawed and it's it's not right or if there's any accuracy at all to which she found that in itself is essentially paranormal like if this is a completely novel dna strand that's unlike anything else on earth that in itself is is indication of something paranormal and i don't understand yeah. that a lot of the people that point to her study and just say well she did prove it 
they they sort of sidestep over the fact that this you're like what she if you believe her then you must believe that in this novel dna strand and that in itself is pretty incredible yeah and it's again another example of this the sort of phenomenon sort of you know sidestepping or changing or you know not us not having the the right tools to look at it yeah it's also positing that there is an external reality uh that is concrete and immutable which i don't think is you know there's more and more evidence over the last i don't know 50 years or more that that's not the case oh absolutely i mean i i 100 agree with that but often in talking about this book i have to sort of uh argue from the side of the flesh and blood people to, you know to sort of yeah. point out what they think exactly yeah how yeah, yeah. that's that, that's been a real learning experience for me um is is how, how many times i found myself like really leaning into those you know quote-unquote skeptical arguments but there's some damn good points that they make yes they make about, lots of many good yeah, points yeah. you know it, it doesn't all hold together but it forces you to you to say oh yeah i guess we really have to deal with this and see if there's an answer for it or if they have answered that question except that they have answered that question at least for now but i i think what i sort of take away from that is that it's it's in one of those and it sounds like you know fence sitting or you know some sort of uh kind of goofy uh subjectivist nonsense or something but like what's wrong kind with that? of all all things are kind of true you know um i i think that uh you know the skeptics have have points that are very much true and the quote-unquote some of the or the reason true believers do as well but even extending to a to a, a more finite level um i think that the psych study is probably completely accurate and i wouldn't doubt it if on some sort of level you know melba ketchum study is accurate mm -hmm. um because i think that i think that uh some of these truths are are, are really are that mutable um yeah i i think that but 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 at, again, least this at, is at our macro level they're a little they're quite a lot less mutable yeah right sorry and and um i think that this is the so, oh, sorry, my mic just went out. Hold on. I can hear you. Yeah, but the the the, the excellent mic's better. Sorry. Oh, there um, we go. That is better. You sound all you you sound much more macho on that mic. Go ahead. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. Um, this is Josh Kutchen. But I suppose, you know, I I've said for a long time, and I've I, I've felt this way for a long time. That the last people, uh, in any sort of fourteen circles to come to the the consciousness table, we're going to be the cryptozoologists. And I think that they're kind of getting there in a lot of ways. But, mm. uh, but you know, back when I started seeing a lot of things about the non-locality of consciousness and how, uh, and how, um, you know, altered states of consciousness might play into these different, different, uh, different experiences. I, I looked at that and I'm like, well, I can see the UFO folks getting in on that. And I can see the people who, you know, see fairies and time slips and all this stuff, but the people who see Bigfoot are going to be the last people to indulge in it. And I think that hmm. people are finally sort of getting over that hump now. Yeah, I I think so too. There's a lot of you know, there's a lot of truth to that um, uh, structure of scientific revolutions. Kuhn thing about uh, uh, at least the part of his argument that the old the old guard has to die off for anything to grow because they will stop. They stop um, championing or cut, pushing pushing down the the new ideas, and I think that's the, some of those people that were around in the past. Um, there's a very slow generational 
uh, movement towards uh, thinking about things, these things in different ways, just like there is across basically the rest of culture, science, and everything right now. Yeah, I don't think science, I mean, it often does, but I don't think that science has to move forward one funeral at a time. Um, oh, no, no, it doesn't. That's just one of the ways. And I was thinking that, right. especially with this, you know, when it's not, we're not, you know, not uh, per, uh, what peer-reviewed refereed, it's a little bit more, you know, I think that, that uh, peop, the old guard dying away is a little more operant, whereas if you can have a paradigm-changing uh, theory that is testable by people, that, that can change it too. I mean, something that just turns everything upside down, which happens every once in a while. Well, this, this, uh, ex- the whole experience of writing this has underscored my next point a lot, but also, you know, talking to, to Mike Cullen and some other people have underscored this a lot. It's not necessarily the individuals that hold these rigid views. It's, it's more the institutions, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, Im- imagine that people getting together <laughs> always make things more complicated and more obtuse and yeah, well, it's slower the to citadel. change. Yeah, yeah. The Citadel is yeah. a, is a, is a problem. That's why I have that shirt, the you know, mimic the obliqueness of the subject with a UFO on it. It's like, yep. don't a top-down organization with any of this stuff is just gonna it 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 takes something that is so mutable and changeable and codifies it, so you don't see anything else anymore. And the person at the top, just like in any institution, is going to say, "This is what our organization believes," and if you deviate from it, nobody's going to hear from you. You'll get pushed out. Well, to say nothing of the fact that you're introducing politics and, you know, I suspect right. that in that sort of George P. Hansen sense that there is something about groups of people that make them more susceptible to being infiltrated uh, by whatever lies behind that trickster archetype. Mm-hmm. Yeah, either either symbolically or archetypally or, <laughs> or, or practically, you know, Yeah, depending on how par- paranoid you want to get. Um I think people might not know what the difference between volume one and volume two are. Maybe, maybe one of you can explain that or both of you. How is it different? How is volume two different than, than volume one? We really, we really pulled a King Solomon and just wanted to split this thing. I think, uh, I think Tim put it best on a different, um, on a different show that we did. He said that, you know, we got to the point where we were looking at it and it's like, this is kind of looking imposing. Because <laughs> um, altogether, because we did, we had no intention of really splitting it apart. We were going to write one book, but you know, you've got to sort of somebody somebody asked me about how you go about writing a book, and I said, well, I suppose it's different for everyone, but it's a lot like I, I would imagine, you know, um, sculpting would be or something along those lines, with like you know, really good whittling. <laughs> yeah, um, it, you know, you, you, f- first of all, if, if you're going to whittle or sculpt, you know, an eagle, you don't get a long thin piece of marble like you sort of got to get a yeah, an eagle kind of shaped marble piece of marble and then you sort of start hacking away at it and finding the shape but also letting them the 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 medium sort of dictate what yeah, eventual shape yeah. it will michelangelo take. said this about marble he would see the thing inside the marble before he started it that's how he picked the shapes well you know ideas do have people rather than vice versa i'm pretty mm. much convinced of that um mm, yeah but, uh, yeah, the the, top, the 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 shape of this definitely changed since uh, Tim brought me on board. Oh yeah, and uh, thankfully he was uh, he was kind enough to to let me steer it in a little bit different direction. 
And uh, we just That's we great. started writing, and it's they sort of turned into these, you know, two you know, these sort of essay handoffs that we had and different, you know, different subjects that we felt most comfortable with. Um, and we got to the end of it, and it was sitting at about you know 160, 170 thousand words, which you know for anybody who's ah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a chunky book. Um, a normal so book uh, for most people, I think, is between fifty and 70,000. Yeah, uh, I think that the... F- or 80, something, something like that. I'll give you a 200, 250-page book. Yeah, um, for, for people who want to know about my books, at least, uh, Trojan Feast was 60,000, and then Brimstone and Thieves were both 80,000. So mm-hmm. it would have been a, it would have been a doorstop. Um <laughs> Uh, and imposing, like like a lot of people. Honestly, a lot of people yeah. see a book like that and they go, "I can't do that." Yeah, I, that's too big. That's t- that sandwich is too big for me to get my mouth around. I've, I've got, right. I, I'm going to have to cut it into smaller pieces. Exactly what exactly. you did. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, which ironically, I think I might have to do with this next project that I'm working on. But that's neither here nor there. Anyway, so we're kind of like, well, where do we, where do we, how do we split this up? Because we have to split it up, and. I think I was just kind of maybe playing around. I can't remember how we how we settled on it, Tim. I think maybe I was playing around with word counts and trying to yeah. see how it um how it lined up. But it just so happens, and I'm really convinced of this after having done the index for this and after having uh, gone through it and stared at it a hundred different times. For some reason, it really did sort of vaguely line up that volume one was more folklore based and volume two was a little bit more. I said we say evidence based in the preface. I say you know it's more experiential. So you know right, right. There's with, there's a lot more uh, witness accounts in it. Yeah, a lot more witness accounts. A lot of this is sort of like a lot of the things in volume two is just dealing with the problems of Bigfoot evidence. So things like I glow uh, and why that's a problematic. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a, a problematic which, which we can talk about next. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, why, why, you know, these these three-toed footprints, these four-toed footprints, these five, these are, you know, six and sometimes I think eleven-toed footprints. These ending trackways, these are things. I mean, yeah, they sort of do have um, some antecedents in folklore, and we we do bring those up in this volume. But but the the focus of this volume is much more about you know saying what are the problems with this evidence and what does it say about uh, about the phenomena as a whole. Um, and I really, am, I, I don't think we could have split it up any other way, Tim, do you? No, I, I mean, I, I remember the conversation where we were both kind of pulling our hair out. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And it, I would just hit me like a lightning bolt. I said, folklore in volume one. And I, I think you came up with the evidence for volume two. Uh, but it was just pure, just inspiration from the heavens you know it's just yeah. as a lightning bolt said just just do it this way and uh, i think we worked it out as we were talking like minutes you know after like getting the inspiration and we you were like josh says that'll work yeah <laughs> and and that's what we went with yeah and, and, and some of the ahead. some of the chapters are, are kind of arbitrarily placed I'll, I'll be the first one to say that ufos maybe should have gone into volume one but if you're dealing with some of these this orb phenomena then you're kind of already right. dealing with ufos and yeah. Yeah, and the you know volume two is called High Strangeness in the Bigfoot Phenomenon. So, um, what is the you know uh, what when you say high strangeness is part of the Bigfoot phenomenon? What do you mean by that? I guess you mean um, the UFO stuff and the making stuff with sticks and the eye glow and eye shine, which I said we'll we'll get to all that. But it, it, you know what 
why did you call it high strangeness and how is that relevant to the Bigfoot thing? Well, I mean, I, I, I for me, because that's the subtitle of, of, of both of them. Um, oh, okay. Sorry. And then, and then volume one, folklore, folklore volume two, evidence. So oh, right. Um, I'm sorry. But um, I, I think that for me, uh, it was just about, and, and Tim, you can back me up or, or come at this from a different angle, but it was about the stuff, those, those outlaw, those things that, the people who say that this is an undiscovered primate, those things that they just want to say are outliers or are coincidence or should be tossed out, um, really finding a place for all those lovely little tidbits to find a home, I think is, is what I, is what I sort of define the high strangeness as. So the stuff that does have these eerie, um, overlaps with, uh, bodies of folklore that they shouldn't at all, you know, if this mm-hmm. is indeed some sort of primate, um, the things that, uh, I mean, that's probably part of the reason that we sort of lean into the skepticism a bit, um, when looking for ways to, ways to tackle these topics is because a lot of those are kind of, uh, shrugged off with the same, uh, dismissiveness that a lot of the, you know, uh, UFO stuff or a lot of the ghost stuff is, is sort of dismissed with as well. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and I think it's always worth noting, you know, when I first got into Bigfoot, I knew there was this stuff that surrounded. I knew UFOs surrounded the phenomena. I knew, you know, orbs surrounded the phenomena. I, I was aware enough that there was weird stuff as well. But I, I came in and I, I think this is a logical place to start. And I think we probably said this in, in the other interview. So excuse me if I'm, you know, repeating things we said. But uh, starting out with the idea that this is you know, probably some undiscovered creature is kind of a logical place to start. And then you go from there. But, but when I was starting out and when I was in that frame of mind, the thing that, that I was told by many, many people was that, uh, this weird stuff, UFOs, orbs, whatever, you know, all this other weird stuff that we're talking about in these books rarely ever happens. It rarely happens. It's most of the time people just see a creature and then you'll get these very, very rare outlying reports of this weird stuff happening. And that's absolutely not the case. I mean, we filled two gigantic books uh, with these reports. So to me, it's very, very important to stress that, that, that uh, this weird stuff is, it's not that rare. It's I mean, not, it's not, it's not, this is not outlier stuff you've put in these books. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, many Especially of the, too. the uh, very well-known cases have weird stuff associated with it that have just been kind of, you know, what, what I call weird washed. It's just been like taken out of the cases. <laughs> Yeah, um, one of the one of the. Go ahead. Did, did you want to say something, Josh? No, I was just going to say. I mean, some of these things that are indeed, I believe, high strange are so common that the Bigfoot community has sort of created their own their own mythos, their own sort of Rube Goldberg working backwards from a solution that Tim alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, why don't we talk about some of those? Because. Um, the witness accounts are generally you can see some of these accounts and how they've you know been reading Bigfoot stuff for years. I have, and I can see I'll read some of these accounts like, yeah, I remember that. I don't remember that being part of the account because you seem to have uncovered things about these accounts that have been whitewashed, um, with the exception actually. And you 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 know I think you champion him a little bit in the book of Stan Gordon's stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because he yes. do, he doesn't whitewash any of it. He's he's I think from the beginning he's reported all the weirdness as as reported by the witnesses, which is at least in the past has been kind of rare. 
Stan is very, very dedicated to his witnesses. Um, he's he try to get witness information out of him. You're not going to get it. He's he, you know he's absolutely dedicated to, to keeping the the uh, identities of his witnesses secure and and uh, he's and also having dedicated... a long term relationship with them too, which probably brings pieces out of the story that he didn't. You know, most people don't get. Go ahead. But but he's also like very very dedicated to putting down what the witness saw and you know as much as he can in, in the witness's words. So he's he's a you know a very very reliable source for this stuff because he doesn't have an opinion either way on on what it is. Mm. You can't get Stan to you know to say what it is. He just reports you know what the witness said. I think that's what needs to happen. I think that's actually happening in, in UFO studies, too, where people are just saying, hey, the witness should be able to allowed to say whatever they're going to say, um, mm-hmm. no matter how it affects what we think of as, as what's going on. Um, yeah, and it, it's problematic for people who are, who are very into the scientific method because, you know, as I'm sure <laughs> you've heard a thousand times, like witness testimony is like the least reliable source. But that's all we have. All- <laughs> exactly. When it's all you have, you're like Josh said in the beginning, you're either going to end up with everything's a bear or you have to start taking it, you know, what the witness said and saw into account. Mm-hmm. Um, well, for example, uh, the eye shine, the eye glow and eye shine thing. Nobody really ever talks about that uh, that much. I don't remember reading about it when I was a kid reading UFO. I mean, sorry, reading Bigfoot books. But that's kind of a, it's kind of, um, not only is it seen, it's kind of normal. Oh, yeah. yeah and it gets extremely it, strange, too, with like changing colors and all that. Maybe you can describe some of that. Sure, yeah. So, um, and what I heard, you know, very conveniently, uh, again, when I first got into this by the, the flesh and blood folks was like, oh, it's, it's just, it's just eye shine. All anim- well, a lot of nocturnal animals, most nocturnal animals have, you know, eye shine. You, mm-hmm. If you drive down the road and your car lights hit a deer and you see that, that reflection, that's eye shine. And you go, oh, okay, all right, that makes sense, <laughs> until you start digging into it. Um, there's no high-order primates, in other words, no, none of the great apes, have this reflective layer in their eyes called a tapetum lucidum. It's it's a, a reflective layer that that nocturnal mammals tend to have that draws in light, and, and that's what you see reflecting back. So no high order uh, primates have it. There's some lower order primates, some some monkeys like lemurs, I think, um, have this tapetum lucidum, but but no high order like great apes, no hominids have it. So. If that's what it is, we're talking about something that's extremely unique, and and this becomes the problem with with the Bigfoot creature as as a creature. It has so many of these things that are that are very unique to it that aren't like anything else, any other you know primates and so forth. It's it's essentially the king of of all evolution, if it has all these different things. Uh, so it would be very very unusual for a a high order primate, a, a hominid, to have. Why? Well, I'm not unusual. It's unheard of. Like no other, no gorillas don't have it. Humans don't have it. Chimpanzees don't have it. So it would make it unique among the the hominids or high order primates to, that it would have a tapetum lucidum. Mm-hmm. Reflecting different colors is another issue. Like most of the time, these animals will reflect the same color in their eyes. Now bears are are their diet is so varied that their uh, eye shine actually will change. Well, 
they can re- they can reflect back different colors. I did not now they know don't that. change. It doesn't go from green to red to blue as as some of these accounts in the book of Bigfoot I Yeah, as they're watching it. Right, exactly. Yeah. But they they can manifest like a you know you can see a bear with green eye shine you can see a bear with with bluish eye shine bear with a r- red eye shine depending on their diet. Huh. But they're bears like those right. those aren't bigfoot now. But the 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 real twist to this is we're in many cases witnesses are very 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 determined that this isn't eye shine that this is not some kind of reflection that this is instead eye glow this is self illuminating eyes. Now, this is a huge problem as far as pretty much anything else in the animal kingdom. Yeah, it sounds like I a horror movie. It doesn't sound like something that happens out in nature. Yeah, I mean, and and like for me, I'm trying to imagine like illuminated eyes, like as far as what we know about light and, and the way eyes work and stuff, that wouldn't help your night vision. That would, that would, that would make it, it worse. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then you go into like, well you look at bioluminescence and there's, I think they found some kind of monkey somewhere recently that has some like very slight form of bioluminescence, but really it's, it's pretty much unheard of in mammals again, completely unheard of in, in high order primates, mm-hmm. but nothing has glowing eyes really. I mean, like you can't find it except in folklore where you can find tons of accounts of demons and goblins and, and uh, brownies and and you name it elves all these different things with glowing eyes these are where you have reports of glowing eyes eyes like fire glowing eyes etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. so it becomes this real problem that uh that people wrestle with and i think it was cliff barrickman the one of the fellows from finding bigfoot he had a blog where he posited that uh like so humans don't have a tapinum lucidum and yet if you take pictures with the flash you'll see that that red eye sometimes right people get. that has to do with the the open pupils i think and the the actual flash is reflecting off the back of the eye so it's not a tapinum lucidum it's a, it's a different effect mm-hmm. so cliff barackman said well, well maybe bigfoot's eyes are just so big and so open that they they have this almost constant like reflection off the back of their eyes that would explain red eye glow. I mean, you, know? yeah, you got you to gotta admire the uh, creativity of thinking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and, and I don't mean that as dismissively as it sounds, like that it really is a creative thought. Yeah. 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 If that was the case, that would explain red eye glow. It does nothing to explain blue and green right. and yellow and every color of the rainbow that we've, yeah. we've represented in the book. Much less ones that change while the witness is looking at it, which I think you at least had one of those, maybe more than one. Yeah, that was a, a witness I had on Strange Familiars, Jeremy. And uh, actually, I first heard him on Sasquatch Chronicles, and he de- he described this, and I thought, i got to get this guy on the show. And uh, Wes from, from Sasquatch Chronicles was, was nice enough to share his information with me. And uh, we got in contact, and uh, just, I mean, Jeremy just describes, and, and he's very plain, I mean, to, you know, my estimation, he's, he's a great witness. He's, he's very plain-spoken. He's very uh, passionate about, about the subject, and, and I believe him. You know? and, and he describes these lights changing colors. In, in the silhouette of a creature, he's seen a big silhouette, and he's seen these eyes change like Christmas lights from red to blue to green. Uh, very, and there's very no bizarre. light source in the area either. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's adamant. And he's a lifetime hunter. He knows what eye shine is. He is adamant that this is eye glow, that whatever this is, is self-illuminated. Mm -hmm. Strangely, I have a uh, painting that's on the side of my uh, the Roddy Mysterioso site from 1914, I believe, a surrealist painting with a figure looking down at some something and its eyes are actually shining onto it. Oh, wow. Yeah, there, there's a couple... Uh, eye beam stories we have in there where, where creatures emitted beams from their eyes oh yeah uh, yeah one of them was i guess a foreign story yeah yeah i think it was it came from the rosales index if i remember correctly. oh okay yeah yeah um but yeah the, and i mean there's a couple stories of that there's there's i mean just there's no end to the strangeness of these things and and you wonder you know you can get into like you know the eyes as the windows of the soul and what they represent, but really the only the only thing I can point to is that wh where you find stories of things with glowing eyes is is in these old folklore accounts, which you know I personally believe is that's our ancestors handing down stories of of how they dealt with you know these other things and how things they experienced and so forth. Yeah, this is a, a real good example of why I think the, the these two books really work well is because uh, Tim picks up where in a lot of areas where that, that, that I just don't have experience in. Um, and, uh, I haven't really ever given this much thought to I shine <laughs> or I <glow. laughs> um, other than the fact that like, you know, yeah, that doesn't happen in nature. Um, but you know, Tim also has had, uh, you know, eyewitness, you know, firsthand, uh, sightings of something that may or may not be this or some other light phenomena. Um, and uh, it makes him the perfect candidate to talk about the sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's a site seven, seven, seven. <laughs> just yeah, not to get into it too much, but what, when I heard Jeremy on Sasquatch Chronicles, he was describing essentially lights that I had seen. I did not see them within the silhouette of a creature, and since that time, I've I've seen them up close, and I think they're just they're just some kind of weird light. But it what he described to me sounded like it's so much like what I was seeing. I I had to talk to him, but again. He has seen them within the silhouette of, of a creature. Okay. What what uh, did you I'll, see, and what does Site 7 mean? <laughs> so it's a code name of uh, some private property that we visit with some frequency uh, on our uh, on Strange Familiars and, and, and so forth, and my, my podcast. And uh, I was told about it. Bigfoot uh, flap a, area, is it? Uh, there are some Bigfoot reports. Yeah. But by or, far, no, I'm sorry. Like, sorry. I guess a window area or a place where there's more reports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was told about it by a guy who went there and said he saw weird lights and hobos would throw rocks from the woods. You know, that's what, and I was like, well, hobos? What, did you ever see these hobos? No. So essentially, he, he would go to this place and, and have weird stuff happen, and they just, you know, assumed it was it was hobos. Yeah, Bigfoot Skinwalker Ranch. <laughs> right, right. So, so we, we started going there, and, and a friend had told me he'd seen weird lights down there, and, he, and this guy's a Bigfoot guy, and he said, yeah, it's, it's eye shine, and this guy told me they change color according to their mood. So if they're angry, they're red. Oh yeah, that's, a, that, that's right. You described that in the book. Yeah, yeah. If they're happy, they're green. It's like a mood, like a mood ring. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so I went there. I was like, well, I want to see these lights. I mean, you know, who wouldn't? It took me some time to get there, and uh, sure enough, I saw these lights in the woods, and they're moving around and they're changing colors. And I, the guy I took with me happened to have a, a laser with him. Huh. And uh, I said, do me a favor and hit those lights with the laser. Because I, 
they looked like LEDs. They didn't look like anything. Like I, I don't know you. And they didn't look like spaces. eyes or anything. They were just lights, right? Or were they? Yeah, in they, pa- they, they weren't really in pairs. Didn't. Okay. I, I didn't. In fact, someone on a Bigfoot podcast when I was discussing this uh, lectured me on on shooting lasers into the eyes of the poor Bigfoot, and I, I had to. I, I I didn't think that's what it was. I didn't know what it was. We were just we were literally experimenting with whatever we saw out there. Yeah. And I said, I said, hit those lights with that laser. Let's see what happens. It was like a, it was a very powerful military grade laser, like a ten mile green laser, I think. Yeah. And it would take him a while to focus in on it, but when he'd hit him, every single time he'd hit him without fail. You could tell when he'd hit him because they would turn red and they would go out. They would kind of aperture out into nothing. And then about 20 or 30 seconds later, pop, they'd come back on. Um, very, very strange. I don't know of a, a man-made light that works like that. Uh, and I went out there afterwards in the day and hiked all through there and looked for, you know, I was like looking for game cams or anything. Yeah. There's nothing out there to my knowledge that can explain these lights. So anyway, that's what I saw. That's what we continue to see. We, we went, uh, let over the summer and we came in, we hiked in from a different direction and got right to where we saw the lights and they came right up to us. They came right up to us. I mean, my, my one friend was a complete skeptic. He was determined to debunk this. And by the end of the night, he was on his knees reaching out, trying to grab these things. They were that close. No. Uh, the, the the one super interesting thing was that there was four of us there. I know we were looking at the same light at one point, and one of us didn't see it at all. The three three of us saw it, but those two described it as a ping pong ball, and it looked to me just like a little LED light. So and now I was at a different angle. They were right in front of it. I was off to the side a little bit. So I, does the angle matter or did, did three of us, you know, see something different depending on who we are? I mean, that's very, very interesting to me. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Well, I would, I would go immediately to the second idea there, but that's, doesn't mean. <laughs> I, thinking that we, we actually interpreted it different. We saw something different. Yeah. No, well, you saw the same thing, but you're going through your nervous system and your, 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 your uh, memory and everything that's involved with seeing whatever it was that you experienced, it was remembered differently, maybe right at the time or maybe in retrospect, who knows? Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't know. Uh, People I mean, can I... say, are you seeing what I'm seeing and have them describe it to each other? And that, that will, I think if actually, if you, did you guys do that when you were there? We had the recorder running and that's what they said. Oh, it's, it's a ping pong ball. And I was like to the side and, and I don't know if I said it on tape, but I remember specifically thinking at the time, that's not a ping pong ball. That's just a little, look like a little LED light to me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it seems like, you know, and I, I did, you know, do follow-ups with them. Like, re- did you really see what looked like a glowing ping pong ball? And they said, yeah. I said, that's not what I was seeing. Huh. So, yeah. And then one know. person was right. Where was the other person? Were they right next to them? The other that, witness? The, the two other people that saw the ping pong ball were right in front of it, like der- within feet of it, five feet of it. I meant the person right. that didn't see anything. Oh, the person didn't see it. He was to the left of me, so he was even further away. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. it might be something with proximity or or directional or something like that. I mean, I'm more fascinated that it has has to do with your own physiology and all that, but uh, it could it, you know it could very well be either or both. Yeah, yeah, and and that I mean, not to get too off topic, but you know, we've done a number of shows there, and there's been other times where I've been there with people, and we've we're sort of describe sort of describing the same thing, but. I wondered, like, when they described it, like, I'm like, I, it's not exactly what I'm seeing. 
And I sort of like let it go because, you know, whatever, different interpretation, different description. Yeah. But now now I'm wondering if there's, you know, more to that, if we weren't literally, you know, seeing the same lights, but completely different ways. Do you um, record these with video while it's going on? We have taken pictures of them. We have taken uh, like cell phone video and they're completely unimpressive. I, I've stopped <laughs> As doing they it. always <laughs> are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, they just look like little, little dots of light in the woods. One interesting thing is no matter what we're seeing. So if, if they do change colors, so if I'm seeing a blue light and I take a picture, I film it on my cell phone or if it's red or if it's green, a hundred percent of the time on the cell phone, it'll just look white. So I, you know, is that cell phone technology? Is that the camera? I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. But, I mean, this is something that, uh, I mean, as you know, Greg, very well happens in you know UFO sightings. Um, you'll have five people and three will see something and two won't. Or, you know, two will see one color and another two a different color. And the, the yeah. last one won't see anything. Yeah. Exactly. And that actually happened, actually happened with a, a witness that Tim talked to. Of uh, some friends and and uh, was it Washington Tim or Oregon? Washington. That was Washington. The yeah, the, uh, yeah Cage. Um and uh, they had Cage. gone out. And I'm sorry, his name was Cage. Sorry. Cage. I'm like I'm I'm just gonna hope that we didn't write that wrong in the book. And yeah, I no. was Cage. Um, it said Gage in the book. I remember that name. Yeah, yeah, it's Gage. <laughs> okay, yeah. And um, they sorry, were all Gage. out on a they were all out on a walk and uh, they. Apparently, there were a lot of strange things in that town to begin with, but uh, they were walking through the woods, and they're sort of almost like this sensation of the woods getting really strange, like almost like a, a cloud uh, moved in front of the sun or something. And uh, they came around a, a bend in the trail, and they saw this fallen tree, and on it was this big white creature. And about that time, a beam of sunshine breaks the cra- the clouds, and they all just end up scattering. It's not scattering, but running away, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, and years later, Gage talked to uh, his his friend. It was him and two other friends. One of them uh, was looking down at the time, so didn't see anything at all. Um, Gage remembered the uh, creature as being white in color, but uh, his other friend that he talked to uh, said that it was absolutely just black, just dark black. Right, um, right. Black, 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 something black. He said. Yeah, almost, almost that blacker than black description that you hear uh, show up with. Uh, I mean, it shows up in plenty of Bigfoot encounters, and obviously stuff like you know black UFO triangles as well. Yeah, and, and uh, ghost things too, where the people yeah, say they people. see shadow people. They see something that's blacker than black right in the middle of the room or whatever. It's just like a hole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that. Uh, what's that? What's that art? Uh, that art paint that they came up with? Vanta black. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've yeah. got some that's almost as dark as Vanta Black. I was gonna paint an entire bodysuit with it and go as a blank, uh, a, a blacker than black blank space that's walking around <laughs> for Halloween, <laughs> which sh- I'll probably do next year. That should be part of Senor Ovni's costume. Yeah, just the just the Senor Ovni hel- ha- ha- uh, mask, and then the rest is just a blank space. <laughs> I'll give talks in that outfit. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> I argued recently, as t- tell me what you think of this. We'll keep talking about your book. I argued recently in a talk that having a camera or a video during an encounter messes it up because oh. your your memory will go immediately to support that video or whatever the camera saw. Do you if think you that's a relevant... Huh? If you can get anything on the camera at all, yeah. Yeah, yeah because you're, you're now your entire 
being <laughs> is is uh, concerned with convincing people hope you know possibly that what you saw is what you captured on camera and the the um, richness of the experience disappears because you're just concentrating on that camera memory now any other details or richness of that experience will drop away do you, do you agree with that absolutely tend to agree absolutely tend to agree with that yeah i mean but let's let's really unpack this i mean that's if you remember your you know recording device if when trying to take the, the the photo or the recording, something in your head doesn't tell you to not do it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's so many layers uh, that sort of confound that happening, you know. And then if you do take, you know, the, the recording, uh, if it actually turns out and, you know, anything of consequence and if it's, you know. I mean, there's that old joke that people like to talk about of, uh, I can't remember who it was, but talking about, you know, Bigfoot hiding out in out-of-focus areas or, you know, Bigfoot <laughs> being... <laughs> <laughs> or, or or Bigfoot being, you know, fuzzy or like literally blurry. You know, Bigfoot is blurry. I think it was maybe Mitch Hedberg. Um, it was Mitch Hedberg. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mitch, but um, you know what? He's blurry to cameras. Anything that tries I, to record it. Go ahead. Yeah, but I, I totally. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, I, I actually think that that might be spot on um, in a lot of ways. Yeah. But the other issue with, you know, that, that kind of weaves in with what Greg was saying about uh, photographing stuff or filming things. The thing I find that very interesting, and and it's happened to me several times. The when you do have this this kind of weird, shocking experience, the further you get away from it, the more likely you are to try to reason it away, uh, even from yourself. Like, oh, maybe it was just maybe there was something in the woods. I don't know. Maybe it was those game cams in the woods, and they were reacting weirdly to the laser. Maybe it wasn't that strange after all. And I think if you're if you're filming, it's going to kind of sort of lend to that as well into that. Like, well, maybe it was nothing or maybe there it wasn't so uh, shockingly uh, amazing, you know, as these things tend to be. Uh, but uh, again, that's just sort of a working theory. Yeah. Well, oh. if, if it's that shockingly amazing, I think your brain's just going, what do I do with this? Mm-hmm. And so you go to something that keeps you from going nuts or people making people think you're crazy or um, being able to live with that experience. And it may not be what happened, but it's what your mind can remember as something that's ha- that you can handle, even absolutely. if it's even if it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I. I absolutely have had that happen in my own life, you know, when I went to Waverly Hills Sanitarium. Um, it's almost like these, these, the, the, it's almost like the convincing nature of these things has a half-life, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's, that's a good, that's a good it's, one. It's really I like convincing that job. Right off the bat, you know, I mean, like I, I went home, uh, after going to Waverly and, and my, you know, I had, had a door slam open in my face and there was some light phenomena. I mean, really in the grand scheme of things, nothing, nothing too dramatic but you know the door slamming in my face was pretty crazy but um yeah went home you know, this is before i was really involved in any of these topics in any sort of way and uh went home and like barely you know went home at 5 a.m as the sun was rising and barely got any sleep because my whole world had been shattered to a certain degree and now you know that i'm involved in this i'm looking back on that and i'm like did that really happen did it really <laughs> um so yeah that, that totally happens with with i think a lot of people right yeah, it's just it's just how we're made. It's evolutionarily how we're made. You know, how do I, I this is a point I make I'm I'm not going to talk about myself too much, but a point I make in in one of my lectures is that we remember things 
so that it, it you know, not, this is not my idea. This is from neurology and psychology. We remember things so that it's useful to us in the future. Like if mm. we ever encounter this again, we're going to do this. And if you encounter mm. something that makes no logical sense whatsoever, it's got to go somewhere. So, well, either that, it's got it's to go somewhere where either you can use it or if it's just too upsetting or weird, it's changed into something that either you forget or something that you can use in the future, whether or not it's actually what happened at the time or what you were experiencing at the time. Your memory is, um, you know, your memory is probably encoded in the first few moments after, or maybe when an investigator comes and starts asking you questions, you start encoding the memory then too. And it may not be what happened. Exactly. Yeah, I would, I would tend to agree. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, that would definitely apply with Bigfoot. We have an idea for Bigfoot. So whatever shows up, it's like, okay, that's going to look like Bigfoot. And that's how I'm going to remember it. But if it's too upsetting, maybe somebody will remember it as a deer or something, who knows, or a bear. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I, I absolutely think that happens, and and I think this might get into some of the ideas that that we talk about in the the sort of um, Bigfoot as manifested through the cultural lens, and like UFOs, you know, people often talk about the you know the changing nature of UFOs, you know, starting out with the dragons and and uh, rings of fire, and yeah, I guess in biblical times, and and then you know flying chariots and whatnot, and then dragons in the Middle Ages and the airships and and so forth up through time till you get to the the Art Deco stuff in the in the fifties and the black triangles in the eighties and now now we have the you know plasma balls and jellyfish. Well, it's it's not talked about anywhere. But as someone who's you know digs in these old reports, these old wild man reports, it seems like Bigfoot is changing as well, and uh, it's going instead of like the UFOs seem to be getting more more high tech and and just beyond our our technological reach all the time the bigfoot seems to be getting more savage because the older reports you know back in the middle ages Oh that's right just... you did mention this in the book. Yeah, I found yeah. that fascinating. It's almost a uh, 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 not passport to Magonia but uh, um well I guess yeah a passport to Magonia idea. Yeah, yeah it's it, it... Go ahead, Josh. Yeah, it's 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 like a it's like a, a psychosocial idea for Bigfoot, but it's moving in the opposite direction that than the UFO phenomena is moving. You know, it's it's the spectrum from uh, more advanced to more primitive with wild men, where it's almost like you know uh, less less advanced to to primitive to more advanced in in, in the UFO phenomena. Yeah, I interrupted yeah. you, Tim. I'm sorry. Please go ahead. Yeah, I did too. I'm sorry. There's there's, there's plenty of reports. Um, well, you know, the medieval reports have them as almost basically hairy wizards, you know, the very wise kind of uh, magic users of the forest. Yeah, the wild man thing. But when you get up to the, the 1800s reports, um, which is a lot of what I dig out from for the like the Bigfoot in Pennsylvania and my West Coast wild men books are mostly comprised of these old newspaper reports of wild men. A lot of these stories... Like a lot of them have them wearing like torn up clothes or carrying an old rusty musket that doesn't fire or, or you know, these these sort of trappings of, of humanity that that are still on them. And again, when I was writing these, I was still trying to like thinking of this as some kind of, uh, you know, relic hominid or something, some kind of some kind of creature. And I at the time I wrote those books, I literally said, well, I think it's maybe the the editors or the, the writers of the article were just you know, it was Victorian times, and it was just too scandalous to have a naked wild man running around in the forest. <laughs> that's so, not a bad, but that's not a bad idea. That's not so, a bad theory. Yeah. So they sort of, 
threw these clothes on them in the article because it was just too scandalous to have this naked guy. But now I, I like as as I play with this idea now I'm like, well, I wonder, you know, I, I wonder if if wild men at that time weren't a little more, you know, a little closer to human, just a little bit. They're in, in that in-between stage. And and then we move through time and the further we get humanity, meaning we gets away from nature you know we we were in our cities and it never really gets dark uh we have lights on and and all these devices that connect us to each other and and sort of draw us away from nature it's almost as like solitude, by necessity yeah. our, our wild man gets wilder and more savage mm-hmm. yeah there's a, that same idea has come up not the same idea but the the morphing idea has come up with uh not so much ghosts but um ufo stuff especially and how yeah. so, how someone might see an alien or an other or a non-human, and how that's changed over mm-hmm. o- over vastly over time. And then you know, Streber obviously gave us the, um, well, he helped, but he gave us the modern version by having that right. uh, thing on the cover. Because you know, before that, you would have whispers of it, um, uh, like uh, the Barney and Betty Hill, that you know, sort of resembled what what uh, the hill. I mean, what. Uh, um, Streber was talking about, but not exactly. But that's been codified now. It's codified in you know cartoons and and t-shirts and little buttons and you know. So that's all that people are going to see at this point, right. or at least the majority of it. Do you see that happen? Do you see that external idea of what a Bigfoot is culturally affecting you know witness testimony to the point where it's it makes it makes it too um, uniform? I mean, I, I guess in your book you show that no, it's not. I mean, it goes all over the map. That's yeah, a good I, question, though. Yeah, I, I would say I saw it a little bit with the the popularity of Dogman, which is is started to wean a little bit, so it's not so much. But uh, there was definitely, and and honestly, this was more among researchers who who seem to be really really hot to document some Dogman reports. But um, a lot of I, I suspected quite a few Bigfoot reports were being turned into Dogman reports because it was the, the hip, new, scarier than Bigfoot cryptid there for a while. Yeah. And I did I did get some confirmation of that when I, I published a, ostensibly a Dogman report that another investigator had taken in, uh, I think it was, I think it was in my first book, uh, Beyond the Seventh Gate. And uh, the, the actual witness contacted me after reading it and uh, who I didn't name by name but she she recognized the account uh, mm-hmm. you know as her own and she was vehemently de- denied that it was any kind of dog man she said, i never said that and in, in hmm. fact like what she described certainly sounded a lot more like like a sasquatch than a dog man so i do think some of that happens here and there but there's also so much of this weird outlying stuff i mean when we talk about bigfoot and clothes i mean even you know, until relatively recently, there's been some some Bigfoot in you know in a flannel shirt reports and so forth. Yeah, that that we have. So there's no hard and fast lines. I don't think with any of this. So when I say like, you know, there's reports from the 1800s. N- not every report from the 1800s had a creature wearing torn up clothes, but many of them did more than than you get in modern reports. But yeah. on the, the flip side of that is sometimes in modern reports you get a creature carrying an axe or or wearing you know torn up clothes or something. So there's not really any hard and fast rules. I do think there's a cultural influence with this, and and I suspect that people are influenced by that, absolutely. But, I mean, it's hard to say. You can only put down what the witness tells you. Well, if anyone's interested, I would suspect that 
Um, I would suspect that the uh, the hooded nose might be sort of a, a good thing to look for manifesting or not because what's that? Uh, and well, it, and Tim, feel free to cor- correct me on this, but I think most people in in research accept the 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 fact that uh, Bigfoot has a hooded nose. But you don't really see that in a lot of, uh, or didn't for a while, in a lot of Bigfoot depictions in, like, media. Um, the hooded, hooded nose like a human nose versus, like, a flat gorilla nose. I see. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, yeah. Well, maybe yeah, we're talking I mean, about broad strokes here, not not in yeah. the minutia of, of a, a witness uh, account. Oh, sorry, sorry. Well, that's that's what I was thinking when I said it. Not you know, it it influences everything right down to you know half the half the <laughs> half the uh, reports look like Harry and the Hendersons. No, I didn't really mean it in that way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's something I think I mentioned when I first talked to. Oh, I can't remember his name. The guy that said that Bigfoot left a a, a nose print on his truck. Jeffrey Gonzalez, I think, is his name. He lives in Fresno goes to the Sierras and, and does Bigfoot research. But this this is where I'd first heard about mimicry, which was totally um, fascinating. And, and it, I was dumbfounded that Bigfoot did this. And I think a lot of people that know about Bigfoot or heard about Bigfoot don't know about this mimicry thing and how very strange it gets. It's not just mimicry. There's, you know, accents and things that are almost scary in the way that whatever it is is trying to imitate human speech but almost purposely making it rough. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, something that, uh, I found really interesting. Um, so, so you have those, you know, those, uh, famous Sierra sounds, uh, those from the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which are absolutely, I think somebody I was listening to the other day said, like, if you listen to them, they'll, they'll resonate in your soul because they all really are uncannily freaky. They um, are haunting. Yeah. Uh, but it was our, it was our good friend. Um, yeah, you know, in terms, of, in terms of, yeah. in terms of that being mimicry or that sort of being like, pardon the pun, an aped version of human language. <laughs> yes. Um, a really good point was made, uh, by our mutual friend, Ren Collier, who, uh, who said, you know, if you ever considered comparing that to, um, to barbarous words, uh, you know, barbarous words in terms of the sort of uh, patois that you'll find in some magical texts that are, you know, that claim to be, um, that claim to be actual languages, but are actually, you know, in yeah, fact, it's a magical language, but it's just made up for the purposes of the ritual. Yeah, yeah and it really is kind of an uncanny uh, similarity, and that that uh, is something that I think is worth uh, worth Bigfoot examining. Bigfoot glossolalia. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically, basically. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sort of a Tasmanian devil I did right there, but um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, so so you've got that going on, and at the same time, you also have um, a lot of this, uh, a lot of this older uh, folklore. I know we said that Volume Two really didn't involve folklore, but here we are talking about it again. Um, talking about how, uh, you know, whenever wild men would be captured in Europe, uh, they would, uh, 
basically have this sort of nonsensical language themselves that no one could could really understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an interesting little parallel there. Uh, there are, uh, I believe his name. I believe his name is Scott Nelson, a retired Navy cryptolinguist who's analyzed these you know these sounds. And says, says that there's a language there, and it's. Once you like look in look up you know Bigfoot samurai chatter, which is what people colloquially call it, mm-hmm. um, it uh, it really is uncannily um, consistent. Even the ways that people describe it, you know, so it sounds like you know somebody speaking backwards or somebody speaking you know some sort of Asiatic language. Uh, people describe it, you know guttural Asiatic language. Big, and, uh, Bigfoot should sing yeah. praise and call and as nine cues all. Precinct calling him. That's no. It's just it's just Bigfoot's just speaking uh, Esperanto. Actually, since, that's it. Since you mentioned Esperanto the other day, um, but yeah, it's 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 really peculiar. And then you add that onto that. I mean, yeah, there are people who have claimed that Bigfoot can speak English, and the number of things that are attributed to. Bigfoot in terms of mimicry is almost literally anything you can think of. Yeah. Um, Gonzalez told me that people would like the one guy had been lost or something. They couldn't find him. So they're out looking for him and yelling his name. And he finally came back. And then at night, something came around the camp and started mimicking them calling for their friend. Yeah, that's 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 horrifying. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, almost Um, in a almost in a in a uh, sing song um, mocking way, like you would make fun of somebody for doing something like that. Or uh, and the other thing he said that um, they started they thought it was some somebody in one of their friends doing it. And so they started telling him to cut it out and, you know, and, you know, and swearing at him. And then the Bigfoot would swear back at them or whatever it was. Huh. Yeah, I, we have a we have a Bigfoot dropping some f bombs. So, sort of coming back to what we were talking about, you know, so things aping things. I mean, that's that's where that term comes from, right? You know, monkey see, monkey do. But all the attempts to, because there have been pretty focused attempts uh, to communicate with with apes in that in, in a vocal capacity. You know, sign language has made great great leaps um, and strides with things like, you know, Coco the gorilla. But mm-hmm. in terms of apes being able to actually vocalize in that sort of sense, that sounds like, you know, human language, um, pretty bad results. There's one orangutan that kind of halfway uh, sounds like it's mimicking words, but it's really bad. So it's probably very scary yeah. sounding too. <laughs> well, yeah, it is unsettling. Um, you, you can look it up. Um, but uh, so we have something here that doesn't really conform to, any um any primate or really any mammalian um any mammalian features that we know of in the in the in the yeah zoological catalog doesn't mean that you know just because there isn't precedent for it doesn't mean it exists it doesn't exist rather but it means that it's less likely in my opinion um some people will say that uh that bigfoot can imitate a lot of mechanical sounds mm-hmm. um, there was a there was a story that was sort of a late addition that i really really loved um that was from uh, this uh, Russian researcher, Dmitry Bayonov, um, who was talking about this uh, expedition that was uh, around Lake Pyron in Tajikistan. And uh, they're sort of looking, I don't, can't remember if they were looking for Bigfoot or not, but there was something that was heavy walking around their camp, rolling stones and cracking sticks. And so that all of a sudden they started hearing this, this tinkle of a small bell. Oh, yeah. Without footprints, without footsteps, yeah. actually. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No more footsteps, but this bell sound would happen in this counterclockwise rotation around the camp, and they're in the, the middle of nowhere in Tajikistan, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, the next day, they found these Bigfoot prints, and uh, but the the one of the witnesses said that the sounds were almost too clear; they sounded synthesized or like a computer made them or something. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the only thing really on the planet that can mimic a lot of these uh, a lot of these sounds these mechanical sounds to this degree is, is the lyre bird, which is absolutely, if you haven't seen any oh, yeah. video of the lyre bird, like look it up. Yeah. That, it's stunning. It's kind of like, yeah, oh. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely, unca- absolutely uncanny. Um, so it's possible that there's some sort of vocal apparatus there. There are some researchers who said that the Bigfoot must have a second set of vocal cords. Um, but I'm yeah. up to three actually, <laughs> <laughs> that didn't make it into the book. Um, but the only only animal that has multiple multiple uh, vocal uh, cords in that sense um, is the koala. So it's just one of those things that it's almost. Well, you did talk about um, um, uh, what's that overtone singing too as as a possible mechanism for this. I mean, yeah, well, it would make overtone singing a lot easier if you had if you had yeah. multiple <laughs> vocal cords to work. With. <laughs> yeah, that overtone singing bit is anybody who was at the Strange Realities Conference. Um, online this past uh october was that october good lord that feels i think like so yeah it seems ago. like a year ago yeah um is an interesting interesting sort of rabbit hole to go down uh because people have described that sort of buzzing a, a sort of buzzing sound around literally every uh you know unexplained phenomena so we're talking about marian apparitions out-of-body experiences yeah. Almost every abduction that you can find, really. Yeah, UFOs. So yeah, all all that. I think very, not yeah, really, in, not really in hauntings, but uh, everything else. Right. Um, you know, fairy abductions, famously, uh, so some of those as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't get a lot of play in the Bigfoot community, but it, there are plenty of it happening. Uh, but it's always referred to obliquely. It's like a, it sounded like I heard, you know, Bees a hummingbird, or, or yeah. it sounded like a bumblebee was buzzing around my head. And you also find at the same time, beside that. Um, people describing these sort of um, overtone singing kind of sounds. Um, some Someone in one case, a, a witness had his, his, allegedly had his child just like, you know, literally rendered. Uh, yeah, he just dropped. Inca- yeah, incapacitated. Yeah, because this, this dark Bigfoot figure was doing, making this didgeridoo sound, which is a pretty apt description of what uh, overtone singing would sound like in terms of producing a, fundamental drone underneath with with other intervals uh sung above it and um uh interestingly enough al barry when he described bigfoot singing uh said that uh, it was this really uncanny sort of odd he, he sort of struggled to describe it but he said that he once heard it um in a japanese monastery um, and given the the, the uh, date of the book, um, it lines up pretty closely with when the Ainu people um, would have been actually the last practitioner of overtone singing in that culture would have still have been around. Um, so that might be a possible Well, the monastery there. would be because there's different monks singing different things. I've right, heard them do I, it. I've, heard, I've actually heard that, um, that kind of chanting, I think. Yeah, I, I just I just don't know how how strong that overtone singing is in the Japanese Buddhist tradition. No, no, that's... it's not overtone singing. It was different people singing, but the Ainu, oh, okay. the Ainu actually, did, as you describe it, and I think you're right, did have 
uh, overtone singing, just like the uh, uh, Mongolian uh, Tuvan people and, and the uh, um, Tibetan uh, uh, Buddhists. So anyway, it's it's a possible it's it's a consistent possible candidate for what Al Berry was hearing uh, when he said he heard Sasquatch singing, and you know there is some uh, evidence to suggest that uh, a soundscape such as this um, was used by uh, indigenous Australians to sort of help induce altered states of consciousness. It kind of ended up going down the lines of uh, some of the you know binaural beats technology that you'll find um, that's out there. So it's sort of playing with the idea that maybe there's something that is uh, facilitating an altered state of consciousness to interact with Bigfoot um, via uh, this sort of sound. So maybe somehow this sound is originating from some sort of other intelligence, and then when people see Bigfoot, they're already in some sort of altered state. One problem with that, and I'm running up into this a little bit with a lot of my research and a new project that I'm on, is that there aren't a ton of descriptions of people going into altered states of consciousness and seeing Bigfoot. You know, there are a few here and there, some near-death experiences that you'll find, and a couple of trip reports where people talk about seeing hairy hominids, but it's not nearly as common an archetype as, you know, the self-dribbling self machine elves or the... Uh, yes. Or grays or insectoids or whatnot. But um, interestingly enough, uh, Tim recorded um, some of that Tuvan throat singing kind of sound on site at, that was Pond Bank, right, Tim? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you could, yeah. I met a witness named Jeff out there who, who had seen uh, Bigfoot in a couple places uh, in the area. This is Michaud State Forest in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he drove me around to the different different sightings he'd had and but uh he took me to pond bank first because and this works into the the women in white stuff in volume one there was a, a woman in white apparition associated with that and it was probably less than i mean as the crow flies probably less than a less than a mile probably less than three quarters of a mile from one of his sightings um or one of his experiences he didn't see anything that day he got screamed at but uh in any case he took me to pond bank because there's this woman in white legend there and, and I was interviewing him uh, at, and at the time I didn't hear this. I did not hear this. It, now it was a windy day and it was cold. Mm -hmm. It was in March. Uh, but where, when I got, where the was this? Back, Pond Bank, Pennsylvania. Okay. Thank you. Town, town called Pond Bank, uh, right on the edge of uh, Michaud state forest. And, uh, when I play the interview back, I can hear something underneath us the entire time. And I captured probably about two or three seconds of it when we weren't speaking. But it sounds very much like I labeled it the pond bank groan. But it, it uh, sounds very much like something doing that sort of tube in throat kind of and the very low kind of droning thing the entire time. Mm. Uh it's very, very eerie. And and again, I didn't hear it at all when we were there. I was just interviewing him. And uh, in fact, I contacted him and I said, do you remember this? He didn't He didn't hear it either when we were mm. there, but it's on the tape for sure. Mm. Are you sure that you actually talked to a witness, Tim, or was the witness an altered state's Bigfoot? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, he, he drove me around all day, so. <laughs> Not <laughs> counting. Big... Go ahead. Bigfoot that drives if it was a Bigfoot. Yeah. By so. the way, I found a skull every place we stopped that day. <laughs> of of some, some of some animal or another. Yeah, yeah. I think they were all deer skulls that day, but I found a, a deer skull every every single place we stopped. Well, anything else uh, of, uh, synchronistic happened that day? 
Um, that was, I think that was about it. Uh, I mean, he was a very good witness, but he was very, he, one of his experiences was so intense, pretty much the, the last experience he had, he and his wife got, got screamed at by something. And it was so intense that it kind of soured him on the subject. Um, I mean, he was willing to talk to me and stuff, but I could tell he, he had just sort of, uh, lost his passion for, for, for the subject forevermore. It, it really, really upset him, whatever happened. Hmm. Yeah, well, maybe there was something else going on under, underneath that that just, you know, his his future did not include uh, studying the subject anymore, and maybe that's that was what manifested. I don't know. Maybe. maybe. I did see the, the area he got he got screamed at. I, there was a, a tree that was uh, like a sapling that was literally tied into a knot well, um, when we went up there, yeah, which I, I have not seen before or since. So that was very, very interesting. You just mentioned a sapling being tied literally into a knot, and that gets into the sticks, the stick yeah. structures, and the and uh, what sort they are, and uh, what you think their purpose is. Yeah, yeah. the the um, The stick structure thing. So there's, there's, we talk about uh, you know structures which are generally built up, and then glyphs which are the, uh, just sort of symbols placed on the ground. Mm. So you know, and people report both of these things. And uh, I've had a real kind of difficulty with this as presented by by the Bigfoot community. Now, first of all, we'll say that, to my knowledge, I don't think anyone's ever actually seen a Bigfoot making these structures. They yep. they appear in areas where Bigfoot are seen, and therefore they're attributed to Bigfoot. But uh, sounds as, like poltergeist as, stuff. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sounds like poltergeist stuff. Stuff happens in a room when you turn away or you leave or whatever. Oh, and you yeah. come back, it's like who who put that together? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, but to, to my knowledge, I don't think anyone's actually seen a creature building these. But it's it's assumed that you know that, yeah. that Bigfoot are, are building these because it's happening around where the sightings and noises and all that happen. It, exactly. Yeah, and uh, the flesh and blood folks have have come up with these different explanations. One that they're they're markers, um, you know that that may be the best sort of uh, uh, plain explanation. If if so, though they're they're kind of elaborate um, to be markers, but right. you know maybe some have said they're they're uh, either some sort of structure for you know sleeping in or or for keeping their young in, or even hunting blinds. Very, very poor structures for either of those things. They're, they're they're open to the sky. I've never seen one that's been you know completely closed uh, to the sky or would make any kind of uh, sort of um, a structure worth worth uh, spending any kind of time in. Is if you were looking for protection from wind or or yeah. we- other weather. So they're not really practical if you really look at them. Yeah, and and as far as a hunting blind, these things aren't hiding me, much less you know a giant ape man. I, I they're they piss poor hunting blinds and, <laughs> and, 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 uh, protection from the weather. So, yeah. you, you know, you begin to look at these, these other ideas and a lot of times they'll throw out this. So you'll find a lot of X structures, a lot of crossed, uh, trees, some of them extremely large and, and impressive. And, uh, and they'll throw out these ideas like, uh, well, well, that's a warning that, that X is a warning. And, uh, I was told the same thing, by the way, when when I started to find skulls as regards to the Bigfoot investigation. I was told they were they were warnings to stay away. Um, very very human uh, 
anthropomorphization of of this phenomenon to to say that an X is is most certainly a warning or right. or a skull is a, is a warning. I think that's that's a very human way of looking at it. Right. Yeah. And uh, maybe not not so great an idea. So you you look at the sort of other reasons, and one thing I became very fascinated with was the idea that um, these structures could be for perhaps a spiritual purpose. Perhaps there's some kind of altar, or perhaps there's some kind of uh, like a fetish that that they're building up for whatever reason, or even uh, like a three dimensional sigil. If if you know anything about like sigil magic, the right. sort of graphic. Uh, representation of of a, of a spell in a sense mm-hmm. um and this idea had some some weight to it uh for me and i started looking into you know other hominids uh doing this and th- basically the, the best examples you can find are neanderthal and there's some really really good you know evidence of neanderthal at least doing some kind of rituals or where they've set up in caves these circles of skulls uh human skulls and bear skulls and and of course they made jewelry we know they made art now so it's it's not a a huge leap from the idea that they they had some sort of symbolic language to an art you know and from there it's not a huge leap to 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 go that, that they may have had some sort of you know spiritual life or religion or magic and uh looking at, at these stick structures with that in mind, to me, you know, again, I can't prove anything. I, I have no proof of this, but at some point with all this, you enter into the realm of speculation. Right. And to, to my knowledge, no one had really gone there before. We had a couple friends, Ren being one of them, uh, Vanessa Kendall, another who had, you know, s- sort of played with the idea of Bigfoot as a, as a magical creature or as magic users. But, uh, w- when I sort of had the idea, I mean, I, I was just looking at one of these structures one day and I'm just thinking, what could these be for? Uh, you know, what is the purpose of doing this? Right. And it just, it hit me like a bolt of lightning. I was like, it's, it's a sigil, you know? And again, I don't know. It's just speculation, but, uh, playing with that idea to me had, had a lot of weight and, and a lot of, there's a lot there to me, at least that, that they could be, um, playing with these things in a spiritual sense. And the same with the glyphs. There's a lot of the glyphs end up being runes or rune like, mm-hmm. uh, in, in their shape. And, um, again, some of them have come out to be like known Chinese characters and so forth, which is very interesting. Mm. Um, Tobe, the, the, the fellow that, that we'll talk about in, in one of the case studies at the end of the book, he actually left out, um, almost, uh, like wooden blocks with letters on them to spell things out and had messages spelled back to him. <laughs> so there, there seems to be a willingness with, of the phenomenon to communicate. I don't know if these stick structures are for us though. I, I might, you know, I just feel like they might be for them. I don't know that they're necessarily markers because they tend to pop up in one area. There'll be a bunch in one area and nothing else. I think they might, you know, it seems to me that there might be some other purpose to them. And then the question becomes, what's the purpose? You know? Right. There's one other completely selfish question that Josh sent me that I want to address. And that's what the, the, the Hanson <laughs> okay. trickster idea. And also the hoaxing thing, because I wanted to have some parapsychologist type people on to talk about hoaxing and how that is an intimate part and an integral part of the 
whole parapsychology uh, research uh, methodology, and it should be, whereas people seem to think, no, we have to get the hoaxing out of there. It seems to be an integral part of it. So maybe you could address that. Inadvertently or not, do some Bigfoot researchers actually kind of fake it till you make it type thing, or uh, uh, consciously or not, meaning they hoax and then something happens, or do they do it on purpose just to as a as a uh, as a jump start? This was really interesting to me because um, you know you go through, and I love that it pisses off people. That's like you can't be hoaxing. It's like no, it's part of. Oh it, no, man. no, it's 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 baked in, right? Yeah, it's baked right in. Yeah. You go through uh, the trickster and the paranormal, and there's a lot of references here and there that are just like one-off, one-word references to Bigfoot being part of this sort of trickster matrix that he that he comes up with, George Hansen. But um, right. he never really elaborates on them in the same way that he elaborates on UFOs and, and uh, skepticism. And, yeah, uh, that, that's, and, his, know, that's his bill of act, but yeah. Uh, yeah, um, so I sort of wanted to unpack that. Um, to see how the trickster archetype manifests itself um, in the Bigfoot, uh, in the Bigfoot milieu, as it were. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, so, you know, surprise, surprise, it does. Um, not only in the way that the entities present themselves and sort of the situations that they present themselves with, but also, you know, like, like all paranormal phenomena, they happen in trailer parks more, right? That's, that's the, uh, <laughs> that's the stereo, that's the stereotype. Well, they're um, a liminal was, area, you know. Yeah, a hundred percent. There's a really housing, great book, housing, you know. A really great book that was sent my Supposedly. way, um, called uh, "Paranormal America: Ghost Encounters, UFO Sightings, Bigfoot Hunts, and Other Curiosities in Religion and Culture." Um, that was really a great look at the uh, about how these particular um, topics manifest themselves in fringy sort of ways. Um, interestingly enough, Bigfooters uh, are kind of um, a little bit more tradition, more of traditionalists than a lot of these other uh, areas. Um, and they tend to be a little bit more male dominate, dominated as compared to like some New Age movements. Um, you know, probably that traditionalism winds up with why so many people are really adhering to this materialist idea of Bigfoot. But to your original question, I say all that to say this. Um, but yes, um, there are people who um, fake it till they make it, and sort of in the inverse, make it till they fake it. You know, I, I, I reminded of some of those poltergeist cases where there was actual phenomena happening, but there was so much pressure to keep up, you know, to keep up the the actual activity that they ended up having to fake it for, you know, reporters and whatnot. Yeah, um, and that happens. A la Yuri Geller, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, there are individuals who do that. Um, someone who probably did that—it's—it's uh, it's a little bit—it's a little bit difficult to tell. But somebody who probably did that was Paul Freeman, um, who was in the uh, Blue Mountains of the Pacific Northwest, and he was actually working with uh, the Forest Service. But he actually found some Bigfoot tracks, reported them, and they were deemed a hoax. And uh, some people who. Uh, Absolute, some people in the Bigfoot community literally call them absolute, you know, unambiguous fakes. At the same time, it's sort of difficult because Paul Freeman has one of the best Bigfoot videos out there that's not the Patterson-Gimlin film. 
Um, mm. You've probably seen it before. If, if you've looked it up, it's just a picture of a Bigfoot turning around and running off into the, um, sorry, video rather, of Bigfoot turning around and running off into the woods. Um, it's on VHS, so it's obviously not the greatest resolution ever. Um, yeah. But uh, a lot of the uh, ways that um, he would present his tracks often seem to be in really convenient sort of settings. Uh, in fact, Jeff Meldrum remarked uh, when he first met mm-hmm. Paul Freeman that there was like literally a, a set of tracks that was just right there on the road that looked like somebody had hopped out of the truck <laughs> in big footprints. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he also happened to, but you know, at the same time, Meldrum, I believe, if I can recall, um, his visit was unannounced. He just sort of dropped by. So that, so at the same time, Meldrum was like, "Well, these look." kind of suspicious but he didn't know i was coming by so does he just you know do this for funsies you know <laughs> what's going on yeah. there um i'm gonna i'm gonna cite Ren, Ren collier again and uh bring up something that he brought to my attention uh that was uh near where he grew up um there's a, another example of a something called the chocolaca monster <laughs> um in uh in alabama uh near anison that was happening in the late 60s uh-huh. and uh the chocolaca monster was uh revealed to be the, an absolute hoax. Um, after several, you know, uh, weeks of, of sighting this creature on this country road, it was revealed that uh, that there was a, a gentleman who would dress up in like a, a, a big trench coat, and he would like hold an old cow skull over his head. Um, but. <laughs> One of the earliest. There's witnesses. a recipe for disaster at the wrong time, but go ahead. I know it's it's also kind of like it's also kind of charming how how low key that that costume is. Yeah, or, yeah, um, low tech. But it's interesting to compare that costume, and this sort of probably ties in with you know just witness testimony in general, um, to an early uh, early witness of the Chocolate Monster Flap. Um, which was a gentleman by the name of Johnny Ray Teague, uh, who with several friends uh, was driving through the area that this individual would, you know, run out and put on his little show and their car stalled, which number <laughs> one, oh, that, that right there is like, well, you know, this, if it's just a hoax, that shouldn't have happened. Um, but as they looked at the engine, um, there's this creature that was, they said that was like the size of a cow that was this grayish black and was humped similarly to a camel uh, came crashing through the woods. And uh, they, got back in the car, which started after the creature passed by. Yeah. But they saw several other similar creatures on down the road. So I think that in and that there, sort of... And there's no moose in that area of the country. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no moose no moose in Alabama. Thin on the ground moose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, well, I was just saying the hump on the back sounds sort of like a moose, but, you know... It's... Yeah, you know, that, that description always sort of, too, reminds me of, though, of, you know, those people who see... Um, who reported seeing the Loch Ness monster on land, you know, crossing the road. Oh yes, uh, quite a few of those. Me of those descriptions too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think that in a Philip experiment sort of way, um, <laughs> the Chakalaka monster is probably a better example than than Paul Freeman. But the Chakalaka monster, in that sort of Philip experiment way, um, you get enough people talking about this being you know, this. Oh, have you gone on the road and seen the you know the, the monster? Because was apparently on the same same area that he would do it you know have you seen the monster yet and you generate enough people interested in it and it sort of maybe perhaps manifests something all on its own because because you know i could i could say with the story of that johnny ray teague sighting like i could say that it that was just you know they were blowing the story out of proportion but if the car really did stall and then start up again with no problem that's a, that's a very interesting detail yes 
Tim, any commentary on hoaxing and and the trickster archetype as as uh, relates to Bigfoot? I mean, it this certainly folds in well. I don't know if we did we put the disappearing evidence and the trickster next to each other in the book. I forget if we did that or not. I think uh, we did. I think it's disappearing evidence right into trickster, which is yeah, is very appropriate. Okay. Yeah, they they fold into each other nicely. And, yeah, we uh, did talk about disappearing evidence uh, earlier in the show. Yeah, yeah. So you know th- that was more where I concentrated on, whereas Josh did the deep dive into, into Hanson's book, which I, you know, maybe this is a failing in the paranormal, but I've, I've yet to read that. Nah, it's okay. Uh, read it though. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get there. I'll yeah. Get there. I, I, I definitely took one for the team being like, here, unpack this. <laughs> that's, okay. that's okay. I pushed UFOs on you. So that's okay. It's it all balanced. Yeah. Out. We didn't even talk about the UFO stuff at all. Oh, there's so much. But but in any case, it's um, I mean, I I think Josh has has appropriately demonstrated that that it's just there. It's um, I mean, the number of people who who I've known who have gotten involved in, you know, uh, I won't say outright hoaxery, but but in some kind of like shady deals as regards to this stuff uh-huh. has been has been very apparent to me. And it, you know, I'd absolutely agree with Josh that it's, it's just baked in, it's it's baked into this. I don't think you can have the paranormal without some aspects of this, this trickster phenomenon. Uh, and, and sadly hoaxing goes, goes right in there. Yeah. I keep uh, telling people that try to clean up the field. It's like, it's not going to work because as you said, it's baked in. You cl- you can't clean up any of the paranormal fields really because it's part of it. Either you deal with it or you leave it. So that the you know to me the hoaxing thing is you deal with it. You deal with this weird trickster aspect where sometimes hoaxes or misperceptions become bigger than they are, or you just you know give up on it because it's not going to go away. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too if you look at some of the the most famous Bigfoot hoaxes. Um, Specifically, thinking about the uh, 2008 Georgia Bigfoot hoax and the Minnesota Iceman. Yeah. Um, they uh, Minnesota Iceman attorney at law. Uh, <laughs> they, 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 they Frozen both, Minnesota uh, Iceman. Yeah. <laughs> they they both they both conform uh, with a degree of exactitude toward to the uh, to the sort of uh, beats that Hanson outlined in the trickster and the paranormal in terms of how they influence the community and how there's um, liminality involved and uh, and uh, sort of social leveling le- leveling rather of uh, individuals who shouldn't be associating together you know the, the the mightier brought low and vice versa I mean for example the Georgia Bigfoot hoax um, it was perpetuated by like a used car salesman and a an ex police officer who was like who was a uh, who was given an award for being wounded in the line of duty, and while he was off duty for being wounded, is when he came up with the Georgia Bigfoot. <laughs> so it's like it's like the most definitionally liminal you know thing you've ever heard, right? Yeah, and that social leveling as well. Yeah. Um. So that's that's more or less where we where we wrapped up the where we wrap up the book. You know, Tim leads off with mystery lights and you know, UFOs. The first book talks about like the contact experience in Bigfoot. And this is, I was like, so if there are Bigfoot seen outside UFOs, you get to talk about that, Tim. (laughs) So Tim did. Yeah. I want to be really, really selfish before we get to those two cases and at least touch on the Bigfoot UFO thing, because um, 
I not that I'm any expert, but I wrote about it on uh, uh, Euphemistic maybe like I don't know, twelve years ago or something. I said, look, there's so many, there's such a preponderance of them, and you know, people kind of some of the reactions were really, are you know, are you so sure about that? And then you show in this book that it's like the 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 field is lousy with Bigfoot and UFO um, appearing together. Oh, I had to just just take a handful of cases. I just I stopped because I could have easily filled a book this size with accounts. Yeah. So so what you have in there and and really in in most of these chapters is it's just a sampling to to sort of demonstrate some of the ideas we're talking right. about. We were not exhaustive by any means. Uh and again this is something when I got into Bigfoot I was told, "Oh, it rarely have it's happened. There's a couple instances of uh of Bigfoot and UFOs, but it it, it rarely happens." And usually it's, you know, the witnesses are crazy who report these things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's so many. It's it's ridiculous. I mean, there's just, it's it's so many. I used to say I was joking. I used to say, you know, uh, I, I'd say I'm joking, but not really. Give me a Bigfoot case in Pennsylvania and I'll find you a UFO case somewhere, you know, around the same time, around the same place within a, within a few days or weeks. And I'd say, I'm joking. I can't really do that. Honestly, someone might be able to do that and and not just with pennsylvania uh yeah i was kind of gonna ask like what's up with pennsylvania all the weirdness there it's because you live there right yeah i think that's a major part of it um and stan gordon yeah i mean there may be some other things going on i magnetic anomalies and stuff like this this that's not really where i live but you know people have shown me magnetic anomaly maps and so forth and there's there's some pretty interesting stuff there but uh i don't know what it can tell you other than there's magnetic anomalies and weird stuff, you know, mm-hmm. other than that, what can you do with it, that connection? Well, how about, uh, uh, go ahead. But, um, in any case, uh, there's so much, there's so much UFO stuff. And I mean, some of the more humorous things we've, we've written in the book were people saying that, that just whoever the UFO knots are, they're, they're just interested in Bigfoot, like we're interested in Bigfoot. So that's why you see them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You said that, that not, that's a fun thing to say, but yeah, it yeah, just I mean, anthropomorphizes it too much. Do yeah, not multiply just, unnecessarily. Yeah, exactly. Razor, yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, at the beginning of this book, uh, someone famously accused us of using one ex- unexplained thing to explain another. Well, A, we're not really explaining anything. In fact, quite the opposite. We're pointing out a bunch of questions and saying, what are all these weird things that surround Bigfoot? But uh, B, that's that's absolutely what they're doing. It's just like, oh yeah, the 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 aliens are just interested in Bigfoot. That's why you see them. And I mean, there's literally been cases where where the UFO stuff has been stripped away, and I, it's, it's very important for me to point out that uh, seeing a Bigfoot is not a common thing. It's it's an incredibly rare thing. Seeing a UFO, likewise, it's an incredibly rare thing. So anytime where people report seeing these things together or, or you know, relatively within the same space geographically and, and time-wise, mm-hmm. relatively close to each other, incredibly important to note that. I mean, absolutely incredibly important. And uh, the, the, the idea that anybody, whether they be UFO researchers or Bigfoot researchers, would throw that information out is just, it's an absolute crime to me as someone who's interested in this because it's really, really fascinating. And to me, it says a lot about the phenomenon that uh, these different aspects would appear together uh, is is just kind of like tapping us on the shoulder, saying, uh, "Pay attention." Yeah, uh, if you could indulge me in a slight bit of porno, what what is your um, favorite illustration of this? Either one of you or both? 
of of that connection of the UFO Bigfoot connection that that's kind of made you go, huh? What really? That's totally amazing. Well, there's a there's a wonderful Fayette County uh, case, but I'm sure we talked about that last time because that's like the the one that everybody goes to. Yeah, yeah, that opens book one. Yeah, I mean that's, I mean just default. That's that's going to be my favorite case. But there, I mean, there's a few others. Um, Josh, do you have any others? I'm trying to think. Well, I mean, one that I really love that doesn't get enough attention in terms of uh, in terms of the UFO connection is the Momo flap. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I I went for years without hearing that there was really a, a UFO connection at all. Um, what's the, what's like, the Momo flap for people that don't know Missouri Monster, right? Uh, so the the confusingly named town of Louisiana, Missouri, <laughs> um, <laughs> had um in the uh, was it the seventies, Tim. That was I yeah. Look, mm-hmm. Go into the old PDF here. Um, uh, basically, there were the, the, a lot of the activity t- tended to focus around this family. Um, uh, that uh, one day just saw this shaggy Bigfoot like creature i mean it had hair over its face it's almost cousin it like in some ways but <laughs> um but uh with a dead dog under its arm and uh famously the tracks were three-toed mm-hmm. um there was uh there were two fireballs that were seen shooting off marzolf hill which was this area where a lot of the creatures were seen um there was some almost Fatima-like activity uh, one evening after uh, leaving from a, a church service. They looked and they saw what they described as a perfect golden cross on the moon. On the moon, um, yeah, that lit up the entire place like daylight or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the road was lit up as bright as day from the cross, they said. Um, there were voices in the woods uh, when people were looking for this thing. One of them said, you know, you boys stay out of this woods. And one of them said, you know, I sure would like a cup of your coffee. (laughs) I love those two, Um, especially the second. So weird. Um, And then again, um, there was a limestone bluff uh, that was in the distance that was inaccessible that the UFO actually hovered over for a while. Um, And again, indicating uh, possible caves. Yeah, something else. You know, something else. In addition to those three-toed tracks, you know, I have a whole chapter in the book that's just dedicated, just just dedicated to uh, toes. But like, also another thing where the whole series gets its name. There were these isolated short trackways uh, Mm -hmm. that people found as well, and uh, it's just, it really is one of those stories that is so baffling but you can you definitely can see it being cherry-picked over the years for sure i mean i think even though i might have vaguely heard about the uh fireballs um i think they were sort of described more like just random meteors and i had never heard of the the cross over the moon until i started working on this book Um, i certainly hadn't no i hadn't either and that's that's so like i said fatima-y like (laughs) it's just wild um so yeah, the Momo case is is really good, uh, and I think it's, I mean it's it's good not only for that, but it's also, I also like it because it really diffuses what people say about you know oddly numbered toe track prints. You know they'll say oh those three toed footprints are only in Pennsylvania, and I'm like well you know everybody in every cryptozoologist loves the Momo case, and you know yeah that's. No, te- technically, technically, that's west of the Mississippi. You know, if if only if it's like it's on the Mississippi, but still, like that's that's not Pennsylvania. Um, Plenty of three-toed tracks all around the country. 
There really are. There really are. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, those disappearing trackways all over the country as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think one of my favorite moments in the book, and I'm going to put them on the spot for it, um, was t- Tim was sort of kid come to me and was like, he didn't really know how to end the UFO chapter. And I was like, well, you know, read some young and get back to, you know, take, t- t- take some young and call me in the morning. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, but he came up with a really elegant, uh, an elegant metaphor, an elegant model that I, I, I really have been thinking about a lot. And I think it's going to be proved to be useful for a lot of people in the future. So now that I've, I've gushed and set them up, Tim, do you want to share us your uh, Mobius strip model? Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, so I struggle with this idea that, that these things can be, apparitional uh that is like somewhat ethereal ethereal rather mm-hmm. and uh seemingly ghost-like and and uh at the same time they have a physical presence uh they they, they leave footprints they leave hair it's it's something I, I really really struggle with and i was looking for a model for that that i could work with and uh again it was just one of these things that that where the inspiration hit, you know, from one high, like a, like a bolt of lightning. And I can't tell you where it came from. It just, it just came and it was there when I needed it. And the idea was a Mobius strip. Um, and to take a piece of paper and write apparitional on one side or ephemeral or spiritual, whatever word you want to use and write physical on the other. And you twist that into a Mobius strip. And then if you run your finger along that, you you will find that you cannot cross the entire strip without going through both all yeah. the way through the apparitional and then across the physical and you'll end up back in the apparitional. And it's genius. It's a, it's a pretty simple model, but it, it helps me, you know, at least visualize how these things can exist together in that way. When you described that just now, I was, I was picturing a piece of jewelry that has it on there that you would just wear all the time. <laughs> just to remind you, I mean, also as a talisman as to how incredibly um, uh, interlocked the left and right brain, the mystical and the and the scientific and all that are when you start looking at these things and you can't really get away from it. Yeah, I mean, I and I even with that, I just, I wrestle, I mean, that's the hardest thing and it's, it, when I talk about this stuff, I know some people go, walk away thinking like he thinks they're not real because he said they're they're apparitional. Yeah, exactly. And it's like no, I, I that's not what I'm saying at all. And and that's the best way. I mean, really, I needed that model for myself, and and I hope other people find value from it because it's I needed a way to think about it where mm-hmm. I could sort of visualize these things being being both here and not here at once. If if that makes sense, it's in it a way makes it's total a, it's sense a, to me. A, it's a Zen Cohen, you know, it's, yeah. they're, they're here, they're here and they're not here. And, and you have to hold these ideas simultaneously, which is a, it's, it's di- at least for me, it's a very difficult exercise, yeah. but it's a valuable one. It's, it's, it's valuable. Yeah. If, you're if, gonna if, let, the, if the study of water. this tells you nothing else that it's like, you, you cannot have a fixed idea about it because mm-hmm. it closes off so much when you do one or the other. And there's just so much emphasis on the materialist and the scientific um, uh, aspects of this that you almost want to go in the other direction just to see what's there because it's like almost like somebody's just holding up a, a a blind or something so you can't see that because we're so enamored of the um, the materialists because it gives us such wonderful things like rockets and cell phones and cars and things. 
Right. Right. So, well, even even the materialist aspects of the phenomenon. I mean, it's it's so wonderfully seductive when you start in these like these gifting exchanges for instance it's, it's mm-hmm. very very seductive and very very interesting and and uh easy to get drawn into but uh you, you know you have to keep in mind that there's you know there's more going on here you know i, I mean at least i believe you do uh because you're going to start missing aspects of it yeah i totally agree these two cases at the end of the book that illust- basically tie together everything you talked about or we've talked about, um, maybe each of you can describe one or both of those and uh, why why you chose them. Yeah, so I mine actually sort of fell into my lap. Um, uh, Ron Johnson is a an associate of Mike Clellan's, and uh, he said, well, you know, he has a great Bigfoot story, and I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be it's going to be have some mild high strangeness with it. Um, but it actually is really, really strange. Um, he, uh, is someone who's had sort of a lifetime of contact. Um, and he, uh, is based out of Utah. Um, and had uh, a very close friend of his, who was also interested in Bigfoot as Bigfoot researcher, um, pass away. But before he passed away, he almost had sort of a, uh, you know, you hear about these uh, sort of death death pacts that people in parapsychology used to make. Like, you know, when I die, I'll come back and tell you the secret <laughs> to everything. Yeah, uh, well, he had one that he said, when I die, you know, I'm going to learn the secret to Bigfoot. And if there's any way I can come back, I'm going to find a way to come back and, and tell you. Two weeks later, he died from uh, from ALS. Um, and three months after after the funeral, um, he uh, he had a a very vivid dream with his friend in it that says, Hey, I know all about Bigfoot now. And, uh, when you die, you'll know the secret too, but be really careful. Something amazing is going to happen to you. And he was like, okay, this is sort of odd. Um, and then one night he, he can't really say whether it's a dream or it was, you know, it was some sort of altered state in the sense that it seemed very, had almost sort of had that realer than real quality, but this, pillar of light manifests in his living room while he's watching TV. And he said it had the same quality as his alien experiences. So, you know, dream, not a dream. Actually, in, I'm at the point now where I really don't care if there is a difference, but that's another thing. But, you know, it was, it was, it was, an, it was, an, it was an encounter with the imaginal, right? Right. And this Bigfoot teleports him um, to a cave where his other Bigfoot friends are eating venison. And he says, Hey, um, you know, I've, your friend told me that you wanted me to see you. Um, you know, if we, you know, and he, and he's, he, uh, said he introduced Ron to this Bigfoot family. And, uh, before he left, he said the same thing, be really careful. Something amazing is going to happen. And to make a long story short and to leave out some of the more, you know, some of the more, uh, some of the more specific details, um, uh, after, you know, a lot of time of not seeing Bigfoot on a whim, uh, Ron picks up his, uh, I believe his nephew, his cousin, his cousin, and they just sort of go to a place where there had been a Bigfoot sighting and he sees a Bigfoot sighting. He sees a Bigfoot rather. He sees Bigfoot in a clearing and not only do they both see the Bigfoot, but, um, his camera, uh, he actually had forgotten that day, of course. Um, and he also got some mind speak telling him to stop in his tracks and not pursue the Bigfoot any further. So, uh, you know, after I spoke to him about this, um, I was really astounded by how it 
sort of combines all the things that we talk about in this. You know, there's an alien connection with his past. There's teleportation and portals. There's some uh, other strange stuff that happened at the at the sighting location. Um, there's this sort of you know afterlife component. Um, there's a precognitive component. It just really was something that combined a lot of the stuff together, and I thought it was would be sort of a a good way for us to to cap this off. I think at one point Tim and I were thinking about like you know interspersing a bunch of different case studies like this, and mm-hmm. we could have, but the book would have been you know twice as long. Well, yeah. So we have so we have these nestled as sort of. Uh, little little tiny uh, culminations at the end of at the end of this book after after reading volume one and volume two you're rewarded with these these two case studies that really Tie are a nice there. summation of yeah of how all this stuff works mm-hmm. all right i will tell you one thing i was i looked behind me for some reason right before we did this interview i have a dartboard behind me I took all the darts oh. and I had the lights basically down because I didn't have all the lights so I couldn't see the dartboard very clearly. And I just threw one dart and it hit right in the middle of the bullseye 10 minutes before we started talking. <laughs> I wasn't there even, you go. I wasn't even looking at the t- I was like, I wonder if I can hit the target and I couldn't even see it that well. I never hit the bullseye and I did it on the first try. Well, you got out of your own way like completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. completely got out of the way. And I don't know yeah. why that's relevant to what we've been talking about, but it just seemed like, you know, it was it was this nice sign. It's like, okay, this is going to be a good interview, and it has been. I really enjoyed it. Worthy of reporting. Yes. <laughs> I guess this is the uh, last uh, High Strange, this book. Are you guys going to do uh, any more projects together? Because to me, the, this is, you know, it's almost like a – you know, it's like a Mac Tony's Crypto Terrestrials. It's kind of a it's kind of a landmark book that people will um, hopefully recognize right now, but also will recognize this uh, many years in the future. And I, I really did enjoy the book. Oh, Books. Thank you. Uh, Thanks. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's worthy of that compliment, but I I, I appreciate it and thank you for saying that. Um, uh, I, I I love anything that death. flatters my prejudices uh, goes into that category. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I, I, I love Tim to death, but I don't think I don't think we have another co-authored book in our future for a while, right, Tim? <laughs> no, no time soon, and and that's not to do with like, like Josh. I will. Josh and I had a conversation, like I think it was earlier this week, where we we made a pact of like if if either one of us goes, you know, God forbid, and leaves a book unfinished, the other one will finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, it so we remain like, I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. You know, I, I will, I will raise Josh's children if he needs me to, I have no problem <laughs> with that. Uh, but, but writing a book together is, is a commitment and yeah. it's a serious commitment. And there's a lot of compromises on, on both of our part and mm-hmm. God bless him. Josh took the brunt of, you know, every now and then it's like being in a family with someone or being in a marriage with somebody, you're going to get in arguments. And honestly, <laughs> honestly, Josh took a lot more of that from me than the other way around. And he was he was very very uh, uh, calm about it and and good at calming me down, but uh, it I can't is, imagine you serious... two arguing. Go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. I can't imagine you two arguing. You've been so pleasant in these interviews. Well, did, did I, I mean, I, I, th- did, I think it's a it's a testament to our friendship that we we quickly get beyond it. I mean, it's especially like over the time working together. Josh just oh, that's just Tim, you know, venting or or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is, it's a serious commitment, and it's a different way of working for both of us. And I, I just think for a little while, we're going to write our own books. <laughs> did, did, did I tell you, uh, Tim, when this topic came up, um, 
I, I sort of said something positive about us working together. I was talking to Whitley, um, and, and he was like, well, that's never been my experience when I've been co-authoring with someone. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, yeah, there was some friction there. There was some friction there. Sure, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, yeah, it's, but, yeah. But well, I it's, think it's such a big effort, and, uh, you know, I, I think we both realized every time there was, you know, any friction that we both just want this thing to turn out well. So Right, that's, yeah. It's your yeah, baby. You want to raise it. You want it to be a nice thing when it goes out the door. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, maybe sometime in the future, but for, for now, Josh, and I, we, and, and I know, you know, Josh and I separately or just have some projects we're very passionate about writing yeah. you know, separately. So, you know, maybe sometime down the road, Hey, who knows? Maybe, maybe in 15 years, we'll need to revisit this topic. Yeah. And in the meantime, when either of you write anything, Please come back and we'll talk about it because I always enjoy, I have enjoyed having both of you on quite a bit. And I haven't actually talked to Tim yet by, by on his own. So maybe um, sometime in the, during this year as I do more shows because I took a big, big, big fat break for I don't know what reason. And this will, this has brought me back. And so thank you so much. Oh, both thank you. you. Absolutely. Anytime, Greg. Yeah, thanks, Greg. And uh, let's see. Tim got to pick music from... Oh, what's the name of your band, Tim? Stonebra. That's it. Uh, Josh, do you want to pick something or a piece of your music, or do you want to defer to Tim? Because uh, the guest always gets to, uh, since there's two of you now, always gets to pick the end music. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I think I'll defer to Tim, actually. All right. Because <laughs> I, th I think Tim has a bigger back catalog of stuff of his own that he can tack on here. So, yeah, we'll do that. All right. What what uh, do you want to pick that now, Tim, or you just want to tell me later, and it'll be a surprise, and we'll just throw it on the end there. Uh yeah. Let, let, let me. Uh, I guess because I forget what I picked last time. Probably the hide behind. I'm guessing from from the Cryptids album. I'm guessing that's, that's maybe. I, I'd, just, I'd have just, to look. Just tack on the full length of Wilderness Geist on here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I probably uh, I, I will choose uh, maybe Eyes of Fire from from my last solo album. But uh, okay. if I can think if I can think about it, let me think about it, and I'll get back to you. All right. Okay. Uh, thanks again, you guys, and uh, hope we can talk again soon. Thank you, Greg. All right. Absolute pleasure, buddy.
Yes, the 